This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Gever Tully. I believe that's how it's pronounced. Maybe it's Jever Tully. I think it's Gever Tully. But he is a software engineer. He is an educator, co-founder of Tinkering School. He's the co-founder of Brightworks. He's an inventor for Tinkering Labs. He is a um, an author of a book that intrigued me. I haven't read it yet, but I have ordered it because that's exactly what I need is one more book in my life. And I have to tell you, he's a big deal. He's very successful. I'm sure he's very wealthy. He's done very well, very famous. I was embarrassed that I didn't know who he was. That was until about a week ago. I am a disciple of Lenore Skenazy. Lenore Skenazy has the website letgrow.org. She was a journalist. She's been a guest on this program many times. Um, I'm often asked, you know, if I, ha- I, I always say, it's such a tough question to answer. Who's your favorite guest? If I could make a list of my top 20 favorite guests, Lenore, <clears throat> excuse me, Lenore Skenazy would be at or near the top. So she linked to this video. It was a TED Talk, to be, to be precise, uh, the, and these are my real teeth, too, uh, that Gever Tully gave back in 2008. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating. So educator, entrepreneur, and somebody that's frequently labeled a gadfly, which I like because I'm frequently labeled a gadfly. And like Socrates, I embrace that distinction and that description instead of running away from it. Gever Tully saw a lot. He saw it before a lot of us. He did this TED Talk about how anything, how the parental philosophy of anything sharper than a golf ball was getting labeled as too dangerous for children. And it was his belief that children were losing out because of this. So he did this TED talk called five dangerous things you should let your kids do. And I'm going to link to it right now on my Facebook page so you can watch it in its entirety when, when time permits. But, I thought this was right on the money. And look, my child is 10 months old. He can't even walk yet. So I'm not going to be racing him towards doing any of these things in the immediate future, but eventually I will. So I just rewatched this and I could and I couldn't help but jot down some of the points that he made, because in less than 10 minutes, he nailed the problem, which they now call safetyism. And the huge advantages that we deny children when we don't let them interact with the not perfectly safe world. Uh, I was thinking about this yesterday because my wife and I were working on putting up a baby gate on uh, on the steps. And she was saying, well, I don't like that that last step, that bottom step is not covered. I don't like that he can still get up there. I said, well, he's going to have to learn that if he goes on that step and falls, it's going to hurt. 
So Tully begins by, conf- and again, I'm not talking really about a 10-month-old child, but I am talking about a 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old child. Tully begins by confessing that he doesn't have children of his own, so he borrows his friends. And when kids attend his summer tinkering school, which has since been expanded into the Brightwork School in San Francisco, and I'd love to take my son there one day, they may indeed come back bruised, scraped, and bloody. And that's because, he says, quote, I put power tools into the hands of second graders. So I'm going to play for you some of the dangerous activities that he recommends children try. And as I play for you some of these, um, I want you to call in and tell me a dangerous, I'm using dangerous in air quotes, the quote-unquote dangerous activities that you should let a child try or that a parent should let a child try. I'm not talking about letting a seven-year-old play with a flamethrower to uh, melt snow, okay? I want to be very clear. 800-848-9222. Let me hear your suggestions. Speaking of fire, that is one thing which Gever Tully believes children should be able to do. Thing number one, play with fire. Learning to control one of the most elemental forces in nature is a pivotal moment in any child's uh, personal history. Whether we remember it or not, it's a it, it's the first time we really get control of one of these mysterious uh, things. These mysteries are only revealed to those who get the opportunity to play with it. So playing with fire, it, I can't, this is like one of the great things we ever discovered, fire. From playing with it, they learn some basic principles about fire, about intake, about combustion, about exhaust. These are the three working elements of fire that you have to have to have a good controlled fire and uh, you can think of the open pit fire as a laboratory you don't know what they're going to learn from playing with it you know let them fool around with it on their own terms and trust me they're going to learn things that you can't get out of playing with Dora the Explorer toys (laughs) and I love what he said there about the lesson children learn the lessons they learn with playing with fire, how it works. I'll be honest, I played with fire as a child. We had a fireplace in my household, and it would not have been an unusual thing uh, at, uh, again, starting at maybe eight or nine years old, maybe even younger, for me to be tasked with um, setting the fire, opening the fireplace hearth, uh, and starting the fire. And to this day, I still do a lot of those things. And it was a a great educational lesson. And I think if I'm ever stranded in the wilderness, one of the few things that I'll actually maybe be able to do, as long as I have matches or something, I'm not going to be able to start a fire with a set of rocks. But one of the few things that I'm going to be able to do is start a fire. I agree with that. The other thing uh, really hit home with me because, well, I'll play you what he says. And uh, then I'll give you my own experience. 800-848-9222. But he says that children should be able to own and use a pocket knife. Number two, own a pocket knife. Pocket knives are kind of drifting out of our cultural consciousness, um, which I think is a terrible thing. Uh, (laughs) 
Your first, your first pocket knife is like the first universal tool that you're given. You know, it's a spatula, it's a pry bar, it's a screwdriver, and it's a blade, yeah. And uh, it's, it's a powerful and empowering tool. And uh, in a lot of cultures, they give knives, like as soon as they're toddlers, they have knives. These are Inuit children cutting whale blubber. Uh, I first saw this in a Canadian film board film when I was 10, and it left a lasting impression to see babies playing with knives. And it shows that kids can develop an extended sense of self through a tool at a very young age. You lay down a couple of very simple rules. Always cut away from your body. Keep the blade sharp. <coughs> never force it. And these are things kids can understand and practice with. And yeah, they're going to cut themselves. I have some terrible scars in my legs from where I stabbed myself. And, but, you know, they're young. They heal fast. So. I think he's exactly right there. I had a pocket knife beginning when I was in the fifth grade, and I would have loved to have one a little bit earlier. I still carry a pocket knife with me, at least one, usually, sometimes multiple. And I'm looking at my right thumb now, and there's a scar on my right thumb. When I was, I don't know, eight, I was whittling. I had a big stick. And I had, I was using my grandfather's pocket knife and I was whittling, maybe I was younger, I think I was eight, but I was whittling this, this stick, the, this branch, a big old branch with a pretty sharp knife and I was whittling in it. And I, I ran the knife into my right thumb and I still have a thumb, a, a, a scar on it to this day. And I learned the lesson, make sure you do not have fingers anywhere near the direction that blade is going. And I never made that mistake again. I agree with uh, Tully on that one. 800-848-9222 if you want to help us make our own list. The other one is a little odd, and it's one that I'm not sure that I can embrace, uh, at least not at a particularly young age. I'd want to get to maybe 10 or 11 before I'd be comfortable with my son doing what he suggests, but I'm curious what your opinion is. Uh, 800-848-9222. Throwing a spear and other target aiming activities. Listen to this. Number three, throw a spear. It turns out that our brains are actually wired for throwing things. And like muscles, there are, if you don't use parts of your brain, they tend to atrophy over time. And uh, But when... When you exercise them, any given muscle adds strength to the whole system, and that applies to your brain, too. So practicing throwing things has been shown to stimulate the frontal and parietal lobes, which have to do with visual acuity, uh, 3D uh, understanding, and uh, structural problem solving. So it, gives sense, it helps develop their visualization skills and their predictive ability. And... Throwing is a combination of analytical and physical skills, so it's very good for like kind of whole body training. Um, these kinds of target-based practice also helps deal, helps uh, kids develop attention and concentration uh, skills. So those are great. I that would not be on my list. I'm still not sure I would put it on my list, but. I did some research on this this spear-throwing, brain-building connection. 
And I read uh, not only the article that Lenore Skenazy had written on this, but read some other research that was out there about children using spears. Because all I'm thinking when uh, when the idea of having a child use a spear, all I'm thinking of is that episode of The Sopranos where Ralphie's son is inadvertently... Um, I don't, I don't know if the proper word is stabbed, but his chest is punctured with an arrow. Uh, he and his friend were playing with a bow and arrow, and one of them is shot. His son, Ralphie's son, is, st- is shot with the bow and arrow. That's all I'm thinking of when he's talking about this spear throwing. Um, but apparently, as for the spear throwing, it turns out that our brains are actually wired for throwing things, as you heard Tully say there. And like muscles, if you don't use parts of your brain, they tend to atrophy over time. You know, that is true. I, when I was in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, even up until the seventh grade, I used to be a champion speller. I was a great speller. Now, because of spell check, I can't spell anything. I can't even spell my own name. Uh, The same can be said of, of phone numbers. You know, it used to be if you wanted to call someone, you had to be able to remember their phone number. These days, you don't have to remember anyone's phone number. You just jot it down into your mobile phone. It's there for life. A lot of people don't even remember. I don't think my wife knows my own my phone number. So um, when you exercise any given muscle, it adds strength to the whole system. And we've been atrophying a lot of childhood by assuming that children are too delicate to deal with any danger, no matter how minor. Um. So I don't know what you think, but give me a call, 800-848-9222. This is an interesting one, and this is one that I wish I had done more as a child. I didn't do this. I don't, I, I don't think I did this at all as I tried to refo- reflect back on my own childhood and see which of these I did, which of these I didn't do. I wish I had done this more, and I'm hoping that my son Carmine will do this as he gets a little bit older. Don't be thrown. It's only the fourth of the five things that Tully lists, but he says number five first. He's a little confused, but uh, whatever. You know, cut him some slack. Number five, deconstruct appliances. There is a world of interesting things inside your dishwasher. Um, Next time you're about to throw out an appliance, don't throw it out. Take it apart with your kid or send them to my school and we'll take it apart with them. Even if you don't know what the parts are, puzzling out what they might be for is a really good uh, practice for the kids to get uh, sort of this sense that they can take things apart and no matter how complex they are, they can understand parts of them and that means that eventually they can understand all of them it's a sense of knowability that that something is knowable so uh, these black boxes that we live with and take for granted are actually uh, complex things made by other people and you can understand them that's one thing I wish I had done more as a child and I think it's part of the reason that I'm unable to fix almost anything I never really took apart appliances, and no one ever said you can't do this. It was just one of those things as a child I never really had much interest in doing. But uh, I do think that there's some value in it for the reasons that Gever Tully stated. Uh, And then the fifth, and then I want to hear your suggestions. We have eight open lines. I know Josephine Cox was trying to call in, but we weren't able to get to her in time. But for the rest of you, uh, you can call in at 800-848-9222. We have eight open lines, so I'd love to build a list. I'm going to purchase this whole book by Gever Tully that lists 50 
dangerous things that you should let your child do. But um, I figured we can maybe make our own list. Maybe there's some that he's forgotten, and maybe there's some that we can we can add uh, to the list, not even having read the book. This is the last thing that he that he talks about, and it's really an interesting one. He says you should let your child break some rules and or drive a car. Listen to this. Uh, number five, two-parter. <laughs> break the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. <laughs> There are laws on safety regulations that attempt to limit how we can interact with the things that we own, in this case, digital media. Uh, It's a very simple exercise. Buy a song on iTunes, write it to a CD, then rip the CD to an MP3 and play it on your very same computer. You've just broken a law. Technically, the RIAA could come and persecute you. It's an important lesson for kids to understand that some of these laws get broken by accident and that laws have to be interpreted and that's something we often talk about with the kids when uh, we're fooling around with things and breaking them open and taking them apart and using them for other things and uh, also when we go out and drive a car. Driving a car is a is a really empowering act for a young child so this is the alternate For those of you who aren't comfortable actually breaking the law, you can drive a car with your child. Uh, this is this is a great stage for a kid. This happens about the same time that they get latched onto things like dinosaurs, these big things in the outside world that they're trying to get a grip on. A car is a similar object, and they can get in a car and drive it, and that's a really... Uh, like gives them a handle on the world in a way that it wouldn't uh, that they don't often have access to. So, and it's perfectly legal. Find a big empty lot, make sure there's nothing in it, and uh, it's on private property. And let them drive your car. It's very safe, actually. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. That's not something I don't think I ever drove a car until I was at least 16, maybe even 17. Uh, But that's certainly something that I wish I'd had the opportunity to do. I might be a better driver today. Now, as we put together our own list at 800-848-9222, and I have a couple of other ones here, Tully's philosophy on allowing children to participate in more dangerous activities has attracted all sorts of criticism from not only some parents but child psychologists. Uh, Child psychologist Michael Carr Craig, for instance, has called uh, Tully's whole presentation an overreaction to cotton wool parenting, and he's called for sales of his book to be banned in Australia. By the way, he's made that call for a ban despite Michael Carr Craig never having read the book. Amanda Cox, founder of the parent organization Real Mums, has also criticized the book, claiming that the book crosses a fine line between learning and being dangerous. What do you think? And get, let's uh, round out this list with a few more. One that I would add is climb a tree. Climb a tree and climb a fence. I think those are both uh, pretty important things that a, a child should do. Someone, something, someone that, uh, another one that someone else said that I don't know that I would have thought of, but it is interesting, is spend an hour blindfolded. That's interesting. I never, I don't think I've ever done that, and I'm not sure that I immediately understand the value 
But that's one that uh, some ch- parents are suggesting. 800-848-9222. Mike is in New Rochelle. Mike, hello. Good morning, Frank. I say let the kid light fireworks. Okay, well, that's uh, that's right in line with playing with fire. W- what about, just to play devil's advocate uh, here, Mike, what about people that say uh, if you let a child uh, light an M80 or something, maybe that results in him blowing up his own hand? Or if you let him uh, light a bottle rocket by himself, maybe that results in him losing an eye or something. Well, you don't let him do it by himself at first. You show him the right way to do it. And if he's stupid enough to do something that crazy, well, then that's his own fault. Yeah. Hey, Mike, uh, makes sense to me. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Pete on Staten Island. Hello, Pete. Hey, Frank. Yeah, you know, I raised my daughter because, uh, you know, my wife was working. I got sick at one point. And uh, one of the good things I recommend to people uh, is my daughter works for Children's Services. ACS is one of the head people on Staten Island. But I recommend what somebody told me years ago. When your daughter comes home or your son comes home from school, ask them how their day was. And stand up for them. If they tell you they had a problem with a teacher or something, yeah, give them the benefit of the doubt, talk to the teacher, and get it straightened out. All right. Well, Pete, I'm not sure that's very dangerous. Well, not well, well, about dangerous. Well, the thing is with my daughter, uh, she used to get picked on because she wore glasses, you know. So that was a dangerous thing. So couldn't okay. get her contacts. So, uh, you know, we uh, got her nice glasses that didn't look uh you know, to make her look... Uh, like okay, a, well, like that's nice, Pete. I, I think that's a great philosophy, not only for parents, but for adults, right? Uh, there, I know a lot of adults have tough times when they're stressed out and when they'd rather just rather move on and not have a discussion about how their day was. But you're right. I think a lot comes from that. Uh, Rick in Elmwood Park. Hello, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. If you want the kids to study something dangerous, have them study climate change. And find out the truth that everything they've heard is a lie. And, All right. Well, and I'm not sure that's kind Democrats. of. Yeah, I'm not really sure that's the kind of exercise that we're talking about here. But okay, Jay in Cincinnati, what do you think? Excellent show, Frank. Thanks. Um, had had the family farm here, and uh, my dad let me drive the family station wagon, delivering tobacco sticks in a tobacco field. You put uh, six tobacco plants on a tobacco stick, and he knew I was responsible enough. And it was just a great lesson in life. How old were you? Uh, I was 13, driving a stick shift. Wow. Stick shift uh, station wagon, a little Mercury Comet with uh, three on the tree, six-cylinder. I love that, Jay. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. 800-848-9222. John in Freehold, what do you have for us? Hey, what's up, Frank? Guys, let me list three things first. One, um, you should let kids uh, walk to their friend's house and to the stores. Moms, parents don't let kids do that anymore. We used to walk everywhere by ourselves, no supervision. I, I am 100% with you on this. I've talked about this before, and that's what kind of inspired the whole Lenore Skenazi free-range parenting movement was her decision no, to it, let her, I think, nine-year-old uh, take the subway by himself. These days, children, uh, parents are, are terrified to let their children walk to the store by themselves. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs. I didn't grow up in the city, but... Even still, you know, we'd walk like 15, 20 minutes away to a shopping center to walk to our friend's house or like play manhunt to like 9, 10 at night. It's important to be out by yourself when you're young and to have responsibility. But um, that's one. And then the second thing I was going to say is 
definitely let your kids drive uh, dirt bikes. D- drive dirt important. bikes. Well, that's in line with kind of yeah. driving a car, but okay. Dirt bikes specifically. Um, well, no, the, the, thought, the thought behind this, though, is uh, dirt bikes are, are um, manual. They're not automatic. Oh. It teaches you how to shift. teaches you how to shift, and when, especially when you get into – if you get into a manual car, you kind of have the shifting down. You know that you have to hold the clutch and shift the gear. It's a very uh, – well, what's the word? Educational. Helped me a lot when I wanted to drive a manual huh, car. Really? I knew about shifting. Huh. Well, that, see, that's good to know. See, I never drove a dirt bike, and I think that's part of the reason why I, I never uh, really learned about driving a stick stick shift. Did you have one more, John, or those were the three? Yeah, one, one more, Frank. Uh, oh, I have three. Let me hold on. My last thing I was going to say is uh, tackle football. Very important. Tackle football. We've talked about that before. I think those bring some serious questions about head injury. We'll talk about that. Let me uh, end with Donovan in Vancouver. Hello, Donovan. Hi, Frank. Well, I've got kind of an unusual one, potentially. I am completely blind and have been since birth. So a lot of the play that I was a part of as a child was very experiential and teachable. Like, how do you, how does this work? How do you uh, describe this to somebody who can't see? So one of the cool things I was fascinated as a three or four year old kid was the toilet. And so my mother at certain instances, um, as long as it was, you know, clean, would let me crawl in the bowl and flush it and figure out how the water moved back and forth. So I had a deeper understanding of it. And so she would tell some people who thought she was completely nuts, like, why would you let your son do that? But, you know, it taught me the mechanical functioning of something. That's great. Uh, that's great. I mean, I think uh, that says a lot about uh, about the kind of parenting that you uh, were the beneficiary of as a child, Donovan. Oh, absolutely. Like it taught me, it taught me no fear uh, or fear within within reason, and also that there was really no limits on anything. Well, uh, thank you, Donovan. I'm glad uh, I'm glad you had that experience, and I'm glad it was such a learning experience for you. Uh, well, if you have a few more of these, we'll maybe take your calls when um, when we continue. But otherwise, we'll move on to other things. 800-848-9222. You know, I'm on the website, 50dangerousthings.com, and here's one that they list. And this is one that I never would have thought to try, and let alone, I mean, as an adult, let alone let a child try it. One that they list is boil water in a paper cup. I had no idea it was even possible to boil water in a paper cup. And that's as an adult. I would think the paper would burn and the water would would go onto the flame. But sure enough, that's one of the things that they say you should let your child do. It's one of the things in this book. But So I'm going to check out this book and maybe we'll even have on... Uh, Gever Tully to uh, to talk about some of these items. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Welcome to the jungle. Guns and Roses. A lot of folks say uh, parenting is a jungle. Uh, talk a little bit about this TED Talk that Gever Tully did back in 2008 and the subsequent book that he wrote in a similar vein, which uh, deals with the dangerous things that you should allow your children to do. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to add something to our list. Tony is in Florida. Hello, Tony. Hi, Frank. It's nice to speak with you. Likewise. Thank you. Um, When I was a kid, a brother and sister, and this was in the 60s and 70s, my parents pretty much let us do whatever we wanted as long as we didn't break any laws, you know, cause any damage or anything. We we lived in a, a house built into a hill with a ravine. At the age of four, I would go down to that ravine where the creek was and play for two or three hours at a time. My parents were fine with that because they could look out the window and see me. At the age of nine, I was driving the tractor, and it had a cart on the back, and I was giving the other kids in the neighborhood rides up and down the street. I love that. That's great. And and, uh, the, the ravine was shale. And more than one time, I'd slip down the shale hill into the blackberry bushes I was trying to pick, and somebody would have to throw a rope down so I could climb out again. And there were houses under construction, and we climbed all over these houses while they were being built. My dad put a, a addition on, and we would tightrope across the beams, and if we fell, we would fall about. 12 feet to the concrete below. And this is why my dad would be building. We'd be tightrope walking back and forth. And never got hurt, had a great time, and I wouldn't change my childhood for anything. That's wonderful, Tony. I love hearing that. That's outstanding. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And that's the thing. If you allow your children to engage in some of these activities, they will get hurt. Sometimes they may break a bone, may have some scars, but are the learning lessons not only about the individual activity, but about the, um, I don't know, the sense of pushing the envelope, the sense of adventure, the sense of curiosity, are those worth it? I tend to think that the answer in many of these cases is yes. So I'm going to invite Gever Tully on the show, and I'm also hoping to read this book, and uh, hopefully we'll get some other lessons, that uh, five di- other dangerous things that I can let my son do as he gets a little older. Now, we are air- airing in Baltimore now, and uh, I've been more attuned to news coming out of the state of Maryland, and a Baltimore man has been accused of shooting two squeezy, squeegee kids in an apparent revenge shooting. Now, uh, the Baltimore police commissioner, Michael Harrison, was on uh, Fox 5 in Baltimore talking about this. We're working to figure out how to solve something that has been uh, an issue for the city for four or five decades. Uh, and it, it's quite complex, and that's why... That's why, you know, all of the brain power in the city is all in one. We're trying to help fix that. Now, the thing that struck me about this is what he said there. Four or five decades, they've been working on how to figure this out in Baltimore. This was a problem in New York for a long time. I feel like Rudy Giuliani and Commissioner Bratton solved this in four or five days. 
I mean, maybe if it took a month, that's a lot. But these guys came in and they essentially said, no more, we're, no more squeegee men. And if you're going to go and try and squeegee someone's car, we're going to arrest you for jaywalking. And it will, it ended. It ended. You don't see squeegee men really in New York anymore. There was um, talk of them maybe making a comeback, but that was uh, an basically isolated incident. So you have to, one, it does two things. One, it uh, makes you appreciate what an incredible job Mayor Giuliani did in that respect. And then you think about how dysfunctional the city government in Baltimore is that they can't get a hold on, uh, a hold on this. I mean, unless people are so accustomed to the services that squeegee men are offering that they don't want to tackle this problem. According to police there, there have been more than 600 squeegee-related calls since July 1st. So Wednesday, we learned about two squeegee kids that were shot in May in what police indicate was a revenge shooting after the suspect, who's been arrested and charged with attempted homicide, said squeegee kids stole from his mother. Because that's what the squeegee guys used to do. If you wouldn't tip them, they would rob you. Um, A lot of people said they felt threatened and all sorts of other things along those lines. The uh, Baltimore Police Commissioner, actually those uh, remarks were from WBAL Radio, Um, but if if anybody is smart, they're listening to WCBM Radio in Baltimore, not WBAL. Um, So he was asked in this radio interview, why can't they just be arrested? And essentially he said the answer is quite complex. No, it's not. You arrest them. Um, And it would be disingenuous to your listeners to answer yes or no. There are quite a bit of First Amendment issues at play there. Now, as you know from our discussion yesterday about uh, social media censorship, there is no greater champion of the First Amendment than me. I don't think there's a First Amendment right to come up to a stranger's car with a filthy sopping, dripping squeegee and defile their windshield and threaten people if they don't give you a tip for doing so. So the Supreme Court has ruled that those who solicit donations are constitutionally protected. Legal experts say that squeegee guys uh, and squeegee kids, whatever you want to call them, can go far beyond what the Constitution protects. And I think that is certainly true. So I don't understand why the mayor and his and the police commissioner cannot get a handle on ending squeegeeism in the city of Baltimore. And I'll tell you, for all the criticism of Rudy Giuliani these days, it gives you an appreciation for what a phenomenal mayor this man was. 800-848-9222. Uh, Leo is on the Upper East Side. Hello, Leo. Good morning, Frank. Uh, I just wanted to add to this uh, children, kind of how we raise them. I raised my daughter since age three and a half by myself. And uh, we have up in, uh, by Minnevaska Lake, a little cabin. First, uh, it was a shed on, on my friend's property. And then not far away, maybe a quarter mile, I built our own cabin with the stone chimney, fireplace, everything. 
My daughter was about four, four and a half when I let her bring from the old property, which was quarter mile through the dark forest with little flashlight. I sent her there to pick up some arcs or whatever. I think it was an arc which she was bringing back, and I was following her unbeknownst to her, maybe 200 feet behind her just for the safety. And she made it as a kind of task of proving that she, you know, can make it and give her some kind of uh, not to have fear of dark. Well, I think that, and how did it work out for her? I imagine it worked, your lesson. Yeah, I raised her as a tomboy, and she, uh, since childhood, she was very, not afraid of anything. Yeah, well, good for you, Leo. I think that's great. It sounds like you were uh, a good father that prepared her well for the world. I hope uh, I'm able to do the same thing for my son. Thanks for the call, Leo. You know, it's funny, in light of what Leo is saying, there is a, a show, you can watch it on Netflix. It's a, It's been on for 30 years. And uh, it's on um, Netflix in America, but you can watch it in Japan. That's where it started 30 years ago. It's called Old Enough. And it follows Japanese children ages two to five as they run their first ever errands alone. And you see children going to the supermarket. You see children doing all these things between the ages of two and five. It's an unscripted series. It's a real reality show because you actually see what these children are doing in reality. It's not a reality show where they set up feuds about relationships or whatever else like they might on Big Brother or Survivor or things like that. And uh, sure enough, they recently, I recently read an article about what happened to the kids from this television show. And they're all in good places. They're all very healthy, well-adjusted adults, the ones that are in adulthood now. So that's interesting. All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your calls in just a moment. You can also find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. our Facebook group. Uh, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. You know, one other issue related to children and child rearing that I meant to bring up and uh, I didn't, shame on me, is uh, I was um, in Atlantic City on Friday and my friend Marlena Shivo was down there as well. I think she's going to join me on Friday in studio this coming Friday. And I 
you know, I blew my nose and I have a loud nose blow. And she said, oh, do you have a cold? I said, no. I said, really, ever since I was a child, I've always had sort of chronic sinusitis. I've always had a a need to blow my nose a lot. And when I was in the fifth grade, they removed my adenoids and they said that that would would help. That would make it so that I wasn't blowing my nose all the time. And I don't think it did anything, did nothing. And it got me thinking because a lot of children my age and older, it was a common thing to get your adenoids or your tonsils removed. And it got me thinking, you rarely hear, uh, at least I do, you rarely hear about children getting their tonsils or their adenoids removed. And it led me to think, why? Why is that the case? Why did, for seemingly 30, 40, 50 years, almost every, not almost every child, but so many children went through the rite of passage of having either, I still have my tonsils, but they went through the rite of passage of getting either their tonsils removed or their adenoids, and now... I rarely hear of that. Now, I I just looked up some numbers, and they do do a lot of tonsillectomies, but it's not nearly as many as they used to. And the only good answer, I I couldn't find a good answer, Um, but they say most of the tonsillectomies these days are done for sleep apnea. Uh, So I don't know why they stopped doing it. I am guessing that it has something to do with insurance companies. You know, my father was a health insurance executive for 30 years. And so I've learned that so many of the health care decisions that are made for both children and adults aren't driven by um, the need for the patient and what's best for the patient. They're often driven by the economics of the healthcare industry, either driven by the prescription drug companies or the insurance companies, the health insurance companies. So I don't know why that changed. If there are any doctors, any healthcare policy analysts that are up on this, I would be very curious to know. Or maybe my observation is incorrect. If you're a pediatrician or you're a physician's assistant and you still see just as many tonsillectomies and adenectomies as now as you did 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, let me know. 800-848-9222. I don't think I am incorrect. I talk to a lot of parents. I talk to a lot of children. And I feel like back in the day, tonsillectomies were very common. You know, it was a, almost a rite of passage. The children would look forward to having some ice cream afterwards. Now, I can't remember, literally, I cannot remember the last child that I heard got a tonsillectomy. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Lou is on Long Island. Hello, Lou. Yes, uh, good uh, morning. Uh, as a child, I had a fear of heights. So my father figured he'd uh, cure me of it by taking me up in a two-seat airplane. And then after that, one of those bubble helicopters, and it backfired. I have even more of a worse fear of heights now at 66 years old than I was at eight. <laughs> really? So I oh, guess... yeah. You would advise someone not to not to do that, maybe. Well, I don't know. I guess it would work for certain kids. It'll get them over that phobia. Uh, but for me, it didn't work. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, my hey. father was fearless. He'd he'd go up on the roof and check the shingles once a year. You know, it just didn't phase him. And I just look at him and go, "You're nuts." Yeah, I thanks, Lou. I appreciate that. I'm glad uh, glad you're okay. 
I still work on the uh, I, I went on my roof recently to uh, deal with some shingle cleaning. I'm still traumatized. It's still frightening for me. I'll tell you. Um, hey, you, you ever try the snack Cheetos, Cheetos or cheese doodles? Cheetos are a proper name. And um, cheese doodles, I think, are the generic name. Right. But they're essentially the same snack. There's puffed Cheetos or cheese doodles. There's crunchy Cheetos or cheese doodles. My, my, um, I think I'm stating this correctly, right? Uh, cheese doodles are, uh, no, okay. So, no, cheese doodles are also a brand name. So, cheese doodles and Cheetos are both a type of cheese puffs. We've done whole segments on brand names that you use for products. I think both cheese doodles and Cheetos fall into that category. I've always preferred the crunchy to the puffed, but so be it. Whatever. People have different, different, uh, takes on it. One thing that I've never really understood about the consumption of cheese puffs, and when I use the term cheese puffs, I'm including, this is an inclusive term for the purposes of this discussion, meant to apply to both Cheetos and cheese doodles and whatever off-brand cheese doodle knockoff that's out there, and we are using it to to describe both the puffed and the crunchy variety. I prefer the crunchy, but different strokes for different folks, so be it. One of the things that I've never understood about cheese doodles or cheese puffs, I know I violated my own rule, Um, the enthusiasm that some people have for the dust that comes from these Cheetos. And um, a lot of folks say that that's their best, that their favorite part. A lot of folks, after eating a whole little bag of Cheetos, they love to lick their fingers and to lick the Cheeto dust. That's never really been my thing. You know what it is? It's not that the cheese dust, the Cheeto dust, is not as delicious as the cheese doodle. I think in many ways it is. But I don't like the idea of sticking my fingers in my mouth and I don't like the, just thinking about it, it's kind of gross, the the sound that it makes when you are licking your finger and then pop that finger out of your mouth. I just, I, to me, that's, I don't have a lot of pet peeves of things that people do that turn, that, that turn me off. Again, uh, I'm a guy that regularly sticks pens in my ear. And the, the, I find it disgusting to stick fingers in your mouth and go, just to do that right now. That was not simulated. I actually snuck my index finger into my mouth. I find it gross. I really do. Uh, but a lot of people really enjoy it. Well, go ahead. You want to say something? Oh, what is this? This is people. This, this uh, is people licking their fingers. I hate this. I don't like it either. It's disgusting. I'm, and I don't understand that either. The whole cheese dust thing. But you've seen it though. Of course, and I've done it. But I, it's not like I live for it. I, I have not done it. I mean, I have done it, but I run. To the nearest sink and wash my hands to get that Cheeto dust. Yeah, off I, of I'd it. rather do that than eat it. And I'm I'm with you too. I'm Team Crunch all the way. All right. Well, now <laughs> this is strange. There is a giant statue in Canada that is going to be made completely of Cheeto dust. So. The bright orange sticky residue that Cheetos leave on your fingertips 
has now been immortalized by a 17-foot statue in Alberta, Canada. That's where the, the Hart family was from. The Cheetos brand erected the statue of a hand holding a massive Cheeto, complete with orange fingertips in, I believe it's pronounced Cheetle, Alberta. The community was chosen because of its name. (laughs) Because do you know what they call that orange dust on your fingertips after you eat a bag full of Cheetos? They call it Cheetle. Did you know that it had a name? I had no idea. That's called Cheetle. My goodness. The company's official name for Cheeto dust is Cheetle. So the good folks at Cheetos, look, you have to hand it to them. This is a brilliant publicity stunt. They have built a 17-foot statue of a hand holding this giant cheese Cheeto out of this Cheetle. Lisa Alley, the senior marketing director at PepsiCo Foods Canada, which distributes Cheetos in our neighbor to the north, she said, Cheetos fans have always known that the delicious, cheesy dust on their fingertips is an unmistakably delicious part of the Cheetos experience, but now it officially has a name, and that is Cheetle. And if you go up to Cheetle, Alberta, Canada, you will be able to see this 17-foot-tall statue. Now, I think this is fun. I think this is great. Kudos to Cheetos for coming up with a great uh, marketing campaign. Kudos to the town of Cheetle, Canada, of Cheetah, Alberta, Canada, for coming up with a way to expand awareness and maybe drum up some tourism for their little town. I think this is the kind of creative thinking that towns should be doing to mark. And I'm sure they got paid a little something from the good folks at PepsiCo as well. But I think this is the kind of creative thinking that uh, people should be doing to market this town. I don't know that I would ever make a special trip to Cheadle, Alberta, Canada, but I would, if I was in the vicinity, I would drive over and see it just out of curiosity. If you're thinking about doing that, though, uh, it's not going to stay in Cheadle forever. Cheadle residents and visitors can check out these big, cheesy fingers until November, November 4th, and then the monument will embark on a tour of other locations in Canada. Can you believe that? It's going to be like King Tut touring all over Canada. People will tell the story for years of when the Cheadle statue came to their town. Also, in food news, I did want to um, talk about the, uh, the economics, the controversial economics of the Costco rotisserie chicken. People love those Costco rotisserie chicken. And uh, we'll get into it a little bit later. People are really into it, though. Hey, uh, coming up, we're going to try to reach Dustin Bass. He uh, no-showed us yesterday. He is somebody that is the co-host of a history podcast that's really interesting. And he looks at kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, conspiratorial aspects of history. And he's got a new documentary out all about exploring the death of John F. Kennedy Jr. We'll explore it. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Well, the Earth is a little safer today. You remember the DART probe, that, not DART, but the DART mission that we told you about a week or two ago? The whole mission of this was a test to see if we could divert an asteroid so that, if, that we don't end up like the dinosaurs. So that if we're ever in a position where an asteroid is hurtling toward the Earth that's going to end life as we know it, we don't have to sit there and do a reenactment of the film Don't Look Up. We could send a ship up to divert it out of the way. And uh, it looks like the test that was done, the DART program, was indeed successful. The DART mission proved more successful than expected in adjusting the trajectory of this particular asteroid. Here's the head of NASA, Bill Nelson, to tell us about it. Today, NASA confirms that DART successfully changed the targeted asteroid's trajectory. Now, how do we know that? Well, prior to DART's impact, it took Dimorphos 11 hours and 55 minutes to orbit its larger parent asteroid, Didymos. Since DART's impact, astronomers have been using telescopes on Earth to measure how much that time has changed. And now the team has confirmed that the spacecraft's impact altered Dimorphos orbit around Didymos by 32 minutes and therefore successfully moved its trajectory. In other words, DART shortened the 11-hour and 55-minute orbit to 11 hours and 23 minutes. Wow. And it moved it in another location. So that's good news. I feel, honestly, a little safer. I was a little skeptical of this whole DART mission from the beginning. I thought, even though they were saying this asteroid wasn't much of a threat to us, I think that they they have actionable intelligence that shows that there's some asteroid coming in the near future that is more of a threat to the Earth than they would like you to believe. It's also, uh, so I'm glad that this seems to have worked. At least they're telling us it worked. If it didn't work, they could still tell us that it worked. And what are you going to do, go up and check? How are you going to know if the trajectory of this asteroid actually changed significantly enough to no longer be a, uh, a threat to the planet? So I thought that was interesting, and I think it's certainly good news. That definitely qualifies as good news. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. But I do think that... Um, This is uh, something that is also a good harbinger of things to come in terms of cooperation between international space programs. One of the things that I'm very concerned about in terms of the future of the U.S. relationship with Russia is we've been able to do some great things with this Russian uh, space program, meaning cooperation between the American space program and the Russian space program. And I'm concerned that now that hostilities have ramped up between the United States and Russia, that we may not be able to to do these again. And uh, in the DART program, we showed that different countries can work together successfully to do some things like save the planet, which are pretty important. And obviously, if there's ever an invading spacecraft, 
This is also important technology for us to master. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. The Uni- also in space news, the United Arab Emirates is straddling geopolitical lines in space by working with China and the United States in their lunar ambitions. This is really interesting. So the UAE, one of the wealthier countries in certainly the Middle East, but I think in the whole world, the UAE's partnership with the U.S. and China could potentially help bridge the gap between these two countries. The United States and China does not current they do not currently collaborate on space missions. And with the, we're partnered with the UAE and China is partnered with the UAE. This could potentially be the bridging of the gap necessary to help us work with the Chinese. Both countries very distrustful of one another and in the American case I think we have every reason to be as more nations aim to send people and spacecraft to the moon in the coming years communication about landing sites and the dust environment and a general situational awareness are going to become even more important to make sure everyone's safe so the UAE recently announced it's planning to fly a rover to the moon with China's Chang'e 7 mission, which is expected to launch in about four years. The nation also signed on to the Artemis Accords in 2020, which is our effort to try to govern resources and exploration of the moon internationally. 21 nations have signed those accords, which state that countries party to the agreement will openly share scientific data and provide aid if an emergency occurs on the moon and use lunar exploration only for peaceful purposes. You know who has not signed on to that agreement? China. China has not signed on to those accords. Uh, Gee, what do I? So the small UAE rover, Rashid 2, will be preceded by the Rashid 1 rover. The Rashid 1 rover is expected to fly to the moon with... um, a Japanese lander aboard a SpaceX rocket later this year. And instead of focusing on building rockets to launch its own satellites, the UAE has forged relationships and partnerships to build spacecraft and launch a space program that's already operating a probe orbiting Mars. The UAE did not respond to uh, questions from media people that were asking about this, uh, at least as of yesterday. But uh, I think this is certainly an interesting approach that the UAE has taken because having nations straddle these lines in space could help if conflicts ever arise as the moon becomes a more crowded place in the coming years. So NASA is not able to bilaterally collaborate with China on anything having to do with space without a specific waiver um, from Congress. And that's been the case for the last I think, decade or so. And they did this. They changed the law. They passed this law in part to withhold space collaboration from China until China's human rights record improved. And in the last decade, it has not improved, at least not in a measurable way. But this law also created an additional potentially politically divisive layer to collaboration, and it made it much harder for the U.S. and China to work together in orbit and beyond. So that's that. Hey, the most interesting aspect of space that I was concerned with 
was the comments from William Shatner, which was quite interesting. I recently purchased William Shatner's new book, Boldly Go, and we're going to try and get him on the show. We haven't had any luck tracking him down yet. I've seen he's done a few media appearances, but they excerpted a portion of his book, Boldly Go, in Variety. And uh, it's very interesting. He, the former star of Star Trek and a bunch of other things, T.J. Hooker, Boston Legal, reveals that while he thought his trip would bring him catharsis and connection, instead he was filled with overwhelming sadness. Quote, everything I had thought was wrong, everything I had expected to see was wrong. The contrast between the vicious coldness of space and the warm nurturing of Earth below filled me with overwhelming sadness. Every day we're confronted with the knowledge of further destruction of Earth at our hands, the extinction of animal species, of flora and fauna, things that took 5 billion years to evolve, and suddenly we'll never see them again because of the interference of mankind. It filled me with dread. My trip to space was supposed to be a celebration. Instead, it felt like a funeral. Now, those words have gone viral. Everybody's talking about them, and they're saying that this is an example of the so-called overview effect at play, the impact that going to space and seeing Earth from afar as one whole fragile system has on a person. And uh, Shatner's not the first person to experience this. I have spoken with a number of astronauts about this overview effect, and they felt similar. In his 2015 book, The Orbital Perspective, retired NASA astronaut Ron Garin explained he'd also been filled with sadness during a windshield wiper maneuver that sent him in an arc over the International Space Station. He said, quote, as I approached the top of this arc, it was as if time stood still and I was flooded with both emotion and awareness. But as I looked down at the Earth, this stunning, fragile oasis, this island that has been given to us, and that has protected all life from the harshness of space, a sadness came over me, and I was hit in the gut with an undeniable sobering contradiction. Um, I'm telling you, I am eager to go to space because I want to see if this overview effect happens to me. It happened to Shatner, happened to Ron Garan, Edgar Mitchell, the sixth person to walk on the moon, echoed similar sentiment about his time in space. Quote, From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and drag him a quarter of a million miles out and say, look at that, USOB. So uh, a lot of other astronauts have said the same thing. Shatner is just the the latest to do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Bobby is in Huntington. Hello, Bobby. Hello, sir. Thank you for taking my call. I'm just I'm I'm wary like you are about what's going on in the in um you know um our attempts to go back to the moon and I I have um two people that I know and love. Um one is working on the uh, JPL uh, Mars rover right now and one one is um uh, has the uh, the plans for the uh, lunar module. Oh, that's pretty cool. Who, desi- who design who designed it? He was a technical engineer in my life and that it was um it's something that you know i don't know how much the um not the hubble but what is the um the telescope right now that the james webb telescope james webb i don't know you know how much is how much of space is it actually looking at 
and that that stupid little um, spacecraft that, that that hit the asteroid. It looked so minuscule. Okay, I don't know. I'm I'm so scared. You know, we're so fragile. Our, our race we, we take for granted how much you know. But I'll take your answer off the air. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you. I don't know that there was much of a question, uh, so I don't know that, that I have much of an answer to give. I, I would agree with your analysis that we are so fragile, and uh, I'm glad that your loved ones are working on the continuing exploration of the space program. I'm not sure what else I have to add other than, um, you know, I do those words from Edgar Mitchell, the sixth person to walk on the moon. From out there, you realize how petty international politics look. I, I completely agree. I mean, you have um, people arguing about whether a politician made a gaffe or not or this or that. And then you see the earth from space and you realize how nonsensical all that is and that we should really be concerned with broader things like the survival of the planet. And that's why I'm glad that this DART mission was successful. We were able to divert that asteroid. 800-848-9222. Eddie's in Babylon. Hello, Eddie. Hi, Frank. Uh, I have a cheese doodle story for you, but I first want to say it was great seeing you at the Columbus Day Parade. Oh, thank you. It was great uh, to see you as well, Eddie. Appreciate it. I think maybe you're broadcasting. I sat my jar of Michaels of Brooklyn on, on your, your table. I think you sit next to Vinnie Menudo while I was talking to John Casamitidis. Uh, Meduno, yes. Meduno, sorry. Uh, so I, I'm a student in nuclear medicine at the VA in Northport, and we had a uh, doctor, Dr. Bateman. Uh, from Texas, and uh, he always had this big orange stain on his lab coat. Nobody, nobody could figure it out. And uh, my friend, the doctor, uh, Tom D'Alessandro, said, "He goes, I know what it is. We, what, what is it?" He said, "Well, Doctor Baker would take the nuclear medicine films and put them on the light board, but he was always eating a bag of cheese doodles. And before he would put the scan up or take it down." He would take his hand out of the cheese doodle bag, have a cheese doodle, and wipe his hand on his lab coat, <laughs> and the dust would the dust would be on his lab coat. He goes, "That's it. It's a dust." He didn't lick his fingers because you couldn't then grab the scan and then you know put it back in the patient file or something. So that's my uh, a- a- amazing, amazing your your cheese doodle dust story. I mean, this is this is clinical nuclear medicine. Would science. you go to see this statue of uh, cheese doodle dust? Um, where is it? It, well, it's in Cheadle, Canada. Cheetah, Alberta, Canada. Um, 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 uh, <laughs> it's 17 feet tall, you said? 17 feet tall. And there's a hand that goes toward it or something? Or well, it, or... I mean, you'll see. It. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link to it on my Facebook page. People can see it for themselves. But it, it's a couple of fingers holding a, a Cheeto. Oh, um, well, only only if there were uh, uh, Cheetos or cheese doodles that you could eat. You I'm know, sure there. Had... I'm sure there are, there are. Uh, yeah, if people want to see what it looks like, I, I just linked to it uh, on Facebook.com/slash Morano Fan. Thanks, Eddie. Hey, I, I did mention. Speaking of food, that reminds me. I did want to talk about this um, this Costco situation. My mom worked for Costco for I want to say four months after she retired. You know, she just wanted something to do. And uh, she said, by far, the biggest items that anybody in the store lined up for were the Frankfurters. They have these big old Frankfurters for, I don't remember what they cost, but they're not a lot of money. I think a dollar or two or maybe a dollar fifty. And uh, they have these rotisserie chickens. And she said it wasn't just the, the shoppers. She said that all of her colleagues that worked at Costco 
they would all line up for these rotisserie chickens. And this was a hot item. Now, chicken, as we know, is big in this country. People love chicken. When I first met my wife, she's she's basically a vegetarian now. But when I first met my wife, I didn't even need uh, she didn't even need to look at the menu when we would go out to dinner. We would go to every restaurant and she would order chicken, 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 chicken. And I actually told her that she should start a chicken blog, you know, because she's a writer and she could describe her experience eating chicken at all these different restaurants. She loved chicken. So it's she's not the only one. This year, the average American is going to scarf down. How much chicken do you think? This year, the average American is going to scarf down 99 pounds of poultry. That outpaces beef, pork, and fish. And again, that's the average American. I am far more fish than chicken. That is roughly, think about this, that's roughly 20 whole chickens per person per year, in case you're wondering. So America loves chicken. And about 900 million of the 9.2 billion chickens that we consume on an annual basis. I want you to just picture those numbers again. 900 million of the 9.2 billion chickens we consume each year are rotisserie chickens. Pre-cooked, seasoned, ready-to-eat birds. And of those 900 million... 106 million are sold by one retailer, Costco. Can you imagine? Costco sells 106 rotisserie chicken, 106 million rotisserie chickens each year. That's extraordinary. Costco debuted their popular three pound rotisserie chickens around the year 2000, pricing them at $4.99. That's 22 years ago with inflation and changing times. What do you think they cost today? So they were $4.99 in 2000. What do you think they cost today? $4.99. Matt Blaze is correct. More than two decades later, they are still $4.99. Despite, think about this. This is extraordinary. Despite record high inflation, despite supply chain problems, the rising production costs of poultry, Costco has refused to raise the price of their rotisserie chicken. If they were to adjust this for inflation and have it cost the same as it did in the year 2000, this Costco chicken should be selling for $8.31. You know, I don't think you'd see people lining up for an $8.31 rotisserie chicken the way they do for these $4.99 ones. But over the past 20-plus years, Costco only raised its price one time. In a brief $1 price increase during the 2008 financial crisis. In 2009, it knocked its rotisserie chicken right back down to $4.99, where they've stayed ever since. So many chicken loyalists have been, you know, Arizona Iced Tea has done the same thing with their 99 cent can. Many chicken loyalists have been surprised by this. And uh, The Hustle, which is a newsletter that I subscribe to, they asked the question, how the cluck are these chickens profitable? The short answer is they're, they're probably not. Seven years ago, Costco's CFO, Richard Galanti, 
said that the retailer was taking, ready for this, a multi-million dollar hit by not raising chicken prices. Um, it's a loss leader. They said we were willing to eat, if you will, 30 to $40 million a year in gross margin by keeping it at four ninety nine. So as is the case at most grocery chains, Costco's rotisserie chickens are a loss leader, a product that's sold below its market cost to get more shoppers in the door. And uh, a professor at Rutgers Business School told The Hustle, very few people simply buy the chicken and leave. They probably shop for other items that provide higher profit margins. And Costco maximizes the chance of this happening by what? Placing the rotisserie chickens at the back of the store next to its wines and side dishes, which they do make money from. But um, the CFO says these chickens serve other important purposes for Costco that go beyond profit. Value signaling. They said this reinforces the idea that the Costco brand is a good deal. And, of course, look, what what are we talking about? They say they do this for good press. The company's refusal to raise this four ninety nine price during inflation makes it look benevolent in the public eye. So, um, and they do this with their dollar fifty frankfurter as well. So, I think this is uh, pretty interesting. At three pounds per bird. Uh, so, over the past decade, tactics like what Costco is doing have nearly doubled Costco's rotisserie chicken sales to one hundred six million units. At three pounds per bird, that amounts to six times the weight of the Statue of Liberty. So if you line them up end to end, the chickens would almost run the entire circumference of the planet Earth. Thank you, Christopher Columbus. So this is posing some production challenges for Costco because a handful of producers came to control over 60% of the poultry market, making it harder to bargain. And there's fewer whole chickens. Sales of whole chickens declined from 50, 50, 50%, to 15% of the total market as producers shifted to pre-cut chicken pieces and fast food cuts. The other problem is price surges. Chicken feed, which accounts for 60% of the cost of producing a chicken, shot up in price by more than 200% after its main ingredient, corn, saw a spike. So, um... I don't know how long they're going to be able to do this. I don't know how long they are going to be able to deal with all these spikes in prices. But it's very controversial because some experts argue that contracted farmers who have to pay for their own labor expenses only earn $60,000 a year from the partnership, far less than the $90,000 to $130,000 that Costco had promised them. There was a lawsuit, actually, just this year that allege that Costco illegally neglects and abandons its chickens and accuses the chain of raising chickens so big that they can't walk. Um, In the meantime, though, the Costco rotisserie chicken enthusiasts don't seem to mind. The chicken has its own dedicated fan page with 19,000 followers. I don't doubt that because I get the Costco rotisserie chicken all the time. And I can tell you, on a busy day like a Saturday, you got to wait for it. Oh, I, I, that's what my mom said. Yeah, they go. I mean, you you could see them cooking it, and there's probably I don't know how many birds are on that thing at one time. But you have to wait for it. And you're right; they put it in the back of the store, so you have to walk through the store. And there is no way if you walk out of Costco 
spending less than $100, that's a good thing. Right. You're right. You're exactly right. So the strategy is working. These loss leaders do work. You know who gets that? John Katsimatidis. It must be his background in the grocery business. There's a reason for every holiday that we celebrate, we give away free pins at WABCRadio.com. You go log on there now, and you can get a, a free Columbus Day pin. Uh, same thing for Hispanic Heritage Month. Same thing for Back the Blue. John gets the grocery business. You know, he. nobody ever tells me, well, rarely anyway, nobody ever tells me when I want to give away a The Other Side of Midnight cap or T-shirt, nobody ever says, oh, you can't do that. They recognize the fact that it's going to cost some money, but you went over some new listeners. So um, I think this is interesting, and I'm curious what other marketing lessons we could learn from this. What can we learn from the death of John F. Kennedy Jr.? I will tell you, there are fewer Americans that were more popular. Uh, Obviously, Elaine on Seinfeld was quite enamored with him as a potential suitor. Monica Crowley, who used to, uh, you know, be a talk show host and she's seen regular as a pundit. She said that he was the one person that she would cast aside her political beliefs for because she thought he was so handsome. And unfortunately, the when he died 23 years ago, the world mourned, not just the country, the world. But what if there's more to that story than meets the eye? We're going to get into this with Dustin Bass in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents... What you're about to hear is not a news broadcast. Perhaps you can help solve a mystery. This is the Murano Mystery. The mystery of John F. Kennedy Jr. Well, that is going to be explored. In a new documentary, we're going to tell you how you can watch that in uh, just a moment. But uh, the gentleman who uh, knows a thing or two about this uh, is uh, a guy that follows history very closely, loves to talk about history, loves to explore history and ask questions about it. And that's Dustin Bass. He's an author and the co-host of the Sons of History podcast and someone who's presenting this new documentary on John F. Kennedy Jr. Dustin, we, uh, we, we thought you were missing at sea yesterday. Yesterday, when we tried to track you down, we're glad we found you. Hey, man. Uh, yeah. God bless you, man. You're a gentleman and a scholar for uh, having me on twice in a row. I uh, I missed the first time. All good. All good. So, uh, Dustin, if people are not familiar with the Sons of History podcast, what exactly is it? Well, the Sons of History podcast is uh, just me and a friend of mine. We've been doing it for a few years now, and we uh, we... We just do a, a podcast on historical topics, typically about Western civilization, primarily uh, American history. Um, and a lot of times, more often than not, we have a guest on, either a historian or uh, a historical author, uh, somebody on the show to talk about something in particular. It really ranges from ancient Greece to modern day. So, 
It's terrific. I heard a couple episodes this week, and uh, maybe we can have you and your co-host on soon as we uh, you because you do run the gamut of all the issues that you talk about. So, so that's great. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you what you're doing with this John F. Kennedy Jr. documentary. This is sort of an intro for how the documentary begins, and I believe, and you'll you'll give us the details in a second. But I believe this is uh, produced or at least put on by the Epoch Times. This is how the documentary begins. Quickly, if I can ask you to stand by, we just want to update viewers on exactly what is going on right now. We have the FAA, the Air National Guard, and the Coast Guard searching for the plane of John F. Kennedy Jr., a single-engine Piper Saratoga. It happened the summer before my senior year of high school. JFK Jr.'s plane crashed into the Atlantic along with his wife and sister-in-law. Now, there have been three theories surrounding the tragedy. Assassination, accident, or suicide. But I think it was something altogether different. The three theories leave far too many questions unanswered. So, as Alice once said, Curiosity often leads to trouble. So let's get into a little trouble, shall we? So that is quite a tease there. It's very captivating. Tell us about this documentary, Dustin. What is this? Who made it? What was your role? Well, I, I made it. Um, just me and a, a camera and, and a microphone and a bunch of research. A cousin of mine asked me, uh, I guess it's probably about a year ago, he was like, hey, uh, have you ever looked into the JFK Jr. crash? And I was like, uh, well, I remember when it happened because my dad, he told me, he just came up to me. He's like, yep, they finally got him. And I had really no idea what he was talking about. Um, but I started looking into it and uh, started doing some research because there were just some weird stuff, like just illogical things and uh, just stuff that just didn't add up. So I started looking into it more and more. So, yeah, I mean. I pretty much just recorded and produced it myself, pitched it to the uh, Epic Times, uh, their streaming platform, Epic TV, which I've done a show for them before, and I do a lot of writing for them as well. So I already had sort of a, a shoe in mm-hmm. there. And, uh, yeah, they, they liked it and said that they would stream it, produce it. All right, so let's talk about the the first theory you allude to in that introduction there, and the one that I think is the most popular among people, which is the theory of an accident. A lot of people have said, including a lot of pilots, that um, you know he was not necessarily the most experienced pilot in the world. Would have been uh, relatively easy for someone like that to get into an accident and have a plane crash. How do you evaluate that theory, the theory that it was an accident? I think of those theories as far as like a suicide assassination or it's just an accident. I think the accident probably stands up the best among the three. Um, The NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, their report called it um, an accident based on spatial disorientation. Uh, More or less, JFK Jr. just lost more or less his bearings on where he was and more or less just dove right into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, And yes, his experience level, um, the NTSB had sort of assumed, okay, here's how many hours he had. He had about 300, 310 hours of flight experience. Um, There were 72 hours that were without a certified flight instructor and 55 were at night. Um, So yeah, I mean, you look at it and you're like, okay, 
spatial disorientation. He wasn't that experienced. It was at night. There was no visible horizon. He just had no idea what he was doing, and it's a tragedy. Um, and there's another part of that story, and I think maybe you've heard it. I know a lot of us have that, oh, the weather was really bad that night, and that's just not true. Uh, the weather was fine. The only thing that was um, tough about the weather was that it was night. Um, the visibility was fine, six to 10 mile visibility. Um, even when getting close to Martha's Vineyard, uh, which was where the accident took place, uh, about seven miles off of Martha's Vineyard, it was about two to five miles uh, visibility. So, yeah, I mean, that's probably the best one that, that stands up. I just don't think that it does. Hmm. Uh, so let's talk about another theory you referenced, the theory of a suicide. The people that, that put forward this theory, why do they think uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. may have wanted to kill himself? You know, I, it's one of those things where thinking of it being a suicide, he had really no reason to commit suicide. I just I think that that's one of those things that people people throw out there as a possibility. I sort of toss it out. You know, out of hand, because one, if he's going to commit suicide, commit suicide by yourself. Don't sure. have your wife and sister-in-law. In sure. So I don't I don't hold uh, I don't hold the assassination idea with with a grant, any even a grain of salt. OK, the you, you're saying you, you don't hold the suicide idea or the assassination idea without a grain of salt. Yeah, I don't the the uh, the suicide. Okay. I don't believe that one. So, perfect. how about um, the assassination theory? The people that put forward that theory, why do they think that's a possibility? Well, one, uh, he was starting to get into politics. Uh, he was really interested in, in getting into politics. He had, I think, this was in '97. Um, he was looking into possibly getting in, running for the Senate seat. Uh, that was going to be vacated by Patrick Moynihan. Um, and obviously, Hillary Clinton was going to be mm. running for the Senate seat as well. Um, and so you have this whole and I, I pull out the whole idea of, you know, the, the Bushes and the Clintons. Um, there's the, the famous memo, the J. Edgar Hoover, JFK memo, where George Bush is mentioned of him being in Dallas during the JFK assassination. Um, and then you have um, Hillary Clinton, Clinton wanting to run for the Senate. He's looking into running for the Senate as well. Um, and what would he end up doing um, after becoming a senator? Obviously, with his name, his fame, um, he would eventually run for president. And so I just sort of line that up with there were the powers that be that obviously did not want him running for office because of the inevitable. The inevitable of being the Senate seat would be just a stepping stone sure. to presidency, which would inevitably open up the JFK assassination case all over again. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So um, while you say you you think the accident theory is the most likely, it doesn't sound like you completely rule out the assassination theory. Right. Yeah. I mean, because it it just there is the powers that be the power plays the the whole politics, the, the Bushes and the Clintons. Um, and I, I'm not trying to beat up on the Bushes and the Clintons, but there are just certain things that 
you know, when people are in power and it was Bush to Clinton to Bush and inevitably it was going to be Hillary Clinton. Um, when you start screwing around with other people's power at that level, you never know what, what could take place. And what evidence is out there to potentially support the theory other than the kind of the circumstantial uh, evidence that you just laid out. Is there any actual evidence, any uh, any whistleblowers, any physical evidence, any other circumstantial evidence that suggests that he might have been assassinated? Well, I think there was, as far as, I don't think there was any hardcore evidence on that. I know George Irvin was on the Fatal Voyage podcast, and he had made a mention on the show that JFK Jr. had had a conversation with him um, that there were some people who did not want him running for office, um, some powerful people. So you can sort of leave it at there. Ultimately, it is a bit of conjecture, and I don't really follow uh, sort of that rabbit hole in the documentary. Let me ask you, and I don't believe this is something that you get into in the documentary, but since a caller brought it up yesterday, I want to ask you about it anyway, because I think there are some folks, maybe more than you might think, that do subscribe to this. Uh, This was a caller, Caroline in Ohio, who called me just about 24 hours ago. On JFK Jr., there's a theory now that he's still alive, and I was interested in maybe other people had heard that theory and what they think about it. Uh, There is a corner of the world, uh, namely the QAnon corner of the world, that believes that John F. Kennedy Jr. is still alive. Is that something, either in preparation for this documentary or aside from this, is that something that you've looked into at all? Well, before I got started, that was uh, something that I had heard. Um, Yeah, I mean, you had heard about the QAnon and people saying, you know, JFK is still alive and, oh, there he is. There's the guy um, in the background at a Trump rally and stuff. Um, so I had heard about that. I didn't really pay much attention to it. Um, but like I said, when my cousin said, hey, have you looked into the JFK Jr. crash? Um, I said no. And then one of the first things I come across is the Navy. Uh, when they had uh, got him to the, the Atlantic and was, was searching for the plane um, and they had found the bodies and they had found the plane. And then all of a sudden they decide, let's just destroy all of the videotapes. This is what four or 12, four hour uh, videotapes It's about 48 hours worth of, of videotape. Um, and then all of the photography uh, was all destroyed. That was one of the first things that stood out to me. So why, um, why if it was an accident, why would mm-hmm. there have been an attempt to cover up a portion of the investigation? Why would they have an interest in um, deleting some of this video? Why not put it all out there? What are they hiding? Well, the Navy said they were doing that out of respect for both of the families, which just flies in the face of, of common sense. You don't destroy all evidence, especially when you never had an autopsy, all you had was a medical examination. And here's the thing, Frank, you have an autopsy to figure out, okay, is this actually the person who we think it is when their bodies are really unidentifiable? And you have to think, 
July 16th was when the crash took place. Their bodies weren't discovered until the 21st. So five days in the ocean in water that was almost 10 degrees hotter than necessary to keep your keep your body um it, it the, the water has to keep has to be about 42 degrees or 44 degrees and it was like 52 degrees um and then they had also been hit um with there was one there was one research uh the chicago tribune had had quoted that they had been hit with what was about uh, two pounds of TNT, equivalent to about two pounds of TNT. So if your body and everything and face is destroyed and you're under the water for five days decomposing, um, you're probably not going to be recognizable. So and a medical examination was done. These Reports. These medical examination reports are typically about 15 to 20 pages long, and that's for just one death. There were three deaths, and altogether the, the report was one page long. Um, and just a, a lot of things that just didn't add up. So my, my theory on this is that it was a staged death. Um, and that, I don't know if you want to add yeah, a- please. please. Well, no, no, go ahead, please. I, I explain to us why. What's the what's the benefit to whomever's doing the staging? Okay. So the reason being that JFK Jr. would have wanted to stage his death is okay, maybe he had gotten in too deep politically. Um the powers that be that had taken out his father um had were were still around and we're threatening to take him out. I sort of, I don't really start there on the documentary. I'm more or less in there. What I end up doing on the documentary is lining up all the things that don't make any sense. Uh, for one, the logbook. Um, his first logbook was from 1982 to 1998. His second one was never found. Um, of his 310 hours um, that was that was put together as far as his, his flight experience, you know, like I said, only a little bit was at night. Um, and then he had 36 hours of flight experience in his new plane and night experience at nine and a half hours. And he had only had 40 minutes of doing something he would have re- re- would have been required to do twice in one night, and that's land his plane at night. So he was going to have to land his plane twice at night. So before he left the airport, um, he was going to arrive in Martha's Vineyard around 5.30 or 6 p.m., which would have been well before sunset. Um, they ended up running late, and they are – leaving 25 minutes after sunset. So one, JFK Jr. said he wanted to do this flight by himself, and he was going to have to fly and land twice at night, which he had very minimal experience. And I just question, like, why is it that he would tell the CFI, no, I want to do it by myself. His wife and sister-in-law would be okay with that. Um, He had just suffered an injury, a broken ankle, um, he would have to land and put a lot of pressure on that ankle to land. Um, let's see. I mean, 
you had when he was when he was flying um, there the communication, the frequency on his radio was off by one digit, which meant that nobody could contact him. Um, the The control towers were not able to contact him. Um, but this wasn't because of the um, this wasn't because of the crash that it was off by one digit. This was on purpose during the flight. Uh, the control tower and a commercial airliner uh, were a commercial airliner was about to crash into JFK Jr.'s plane, and they had to con- speak with the control tower in order to avoid JFK Jr.'s um, plane. Um, he had plenty of experience with that leg of the flight from uh, Essex County Airport to Martha's Vineyard Airport. In about 15 months, uh, he had flown it about 35 times. Um, in seven, about half of those times he had done it without a CFI. So he had plenty, he had plenty of experience on this flight. He knew exactly where he would be, um, during the, during the flight at specific points in time. Um, his autopilot was disengaged, purposely disengaged. And here was an interesting thing that, that stood out to me was he turns off the autopilot and the plane descends from 5,500 feet to 2,200 feet. And the NTSB report just stated that there was absolutely no reason for him to make that descent. And then he ascended to another 2,600 feet. Um, Let's see. Um, The rescue beacon on his, on his plane uh, that was off. Uh, it was either purposely disengaged or it just wasn't going off because it was submerged under the ocean. But the interesting thing is, is that rescue beacon automatically goes off if you are under 200 mm-hmm. feet, unless you're about to approach the tarmac. So all of these things, he had, he had turned off uh, the, the beacon. Um, he had turned off the transponder. He had turned off the autopilot. He had done all these things purposely in order to avoid detection. Um, and then once, once the crash happened, you had the Navy, the Air Force, uh, the Coast Guard in on the search uh, for private citizens. These were not military members. Um, I remember Bill Clinton, you know, got, was given a hard time uh, for all of that, but he was like, hey, we're looking for the Kennedys. Um, and who, who, who identified the bodies? The Kennedys, mm. uh, Edward Kennedy and his son. So, uh, Dustin, we, we do have to go, uh, but oh, two quick things. One, I want you to tell people how they can watch the documentary. And two, uh, just explain. So you believe that he tried to stage his own death and then and then died in the course of trying to stage his own death? Do I have the, the overall theory of the documentary down? No, my theory on this, and I, this is strictly a theory, but. In order to, and this is um, the American Parachute Association, 5,500 feet is is the 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 height for inexperienced skydivers, and 26 2,500 feet is for experienced skydivers. And the aft of the cabin, and this Saratoga, and then, um, and we do have to go, uh, Dustin. We run real late, um, uh, but just so if you can just in in twenty seconds, just wrap wrap that up. 
I think they, they jumped out. I think that uh-huh. he had his, his wife and sister-in-law jump out at 5,500 feet, and then you see that descent to 2,600 feet. He jumps out, and you're over the ocean. There's no chance of hitting anybody. And obviously the plane does its death spiral, and there you have it. And how do people watch the documentary? Uh, they can go to the uh, Epic TV, and they can, uh, or they can just follow me on the Sons of History at Sons of History on Twitter, and those links will be up. Dustin Bass, uh, yeah. uh, thank you very much. Check out the documentary. It certainly gives you a lot to think about. If you want to comment, you can do so. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. You want to join our Facebook group, you will see this and a whole bunch of other music that we play on the show on a regular basis. Uh, very quickly, before we run out of time this hour, let me say hello to Ron in Michigan. Go ahead, Ron. Got about 40 seconds. Good morning, Frank. Frank, it was an assassination. The, here's my, my theory on it. <clears throat> the Carnahan family in Missouri, Democratic powerhouses, they were wiped out almost completely in a plane crash. Teddy Kennedy. He was attempted assassination. He only got a broken back out of his plane crash. The Democratic senator from Wisconsin, very progressive Jewish guy, he was plane crashed. Uh, uh, John John, he would have been uh, elected president, senator for life and would have brought the Democrats into power forever. It was assassination, plain and simple. All right, thank you, Ron. Uh, You know, not a lot of evidence there, based on what you're saying. Just, again, just circumstances. All right, coming up next hour, we're going to take a look at sports betting. Sports betting has exploded. What does that mean for the country? What does that mean for the economy? What does that mean for sports? Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. All week long, uh, we've been, really since Friday, we've been telling you about the passing of our friend and colleague, uh, Bernard McGurk. And one of the things that I've done is something that I think a lot of people that have been friends with Bernie, I know for a fact, not I think, I know for a fact, uh, one of the things I did, and I think a lot of people have done, is we went back and we, we reviewed our text communications with Bernie. And some people are some people have shared the communications they had with Bernie. Other people have uh, have not. So um, it's really kind of up to them. And I thought to myself, you know, it's funny. I was reminded of a conversation that Bernie and I had maybe about two years ago, maybe less than that. And we had a debate on air. Juliet Huddy and me. Juliet Huddy was the uh, co-anchor of the 5 a.m. news hour in New York. 
and we had a debate on this program about whether or not sexting is cheating, right? If or and Juliet basically took the approach that if you are married or in a relationship, a monogamous relationship with someone, that that's as bad or worse than cheating on your spouse. I took a um, different approach. And Sid Rosenberg happened to be here. He came in and he agreed with Juliet. He said that if you text message someone, flirtatious text messages or things like that, that's as bad as cheating. I disagree with both of them. And I walked out and this part of the conversation was not on air. I walked out and I said to Bernie, I described, he had been listening. I said, Bernie, what do you think? And Bernie said, absolutely not, not cheating. And then I thought to myself, with all these people looking at their old text messages with Bernie, what, and I'm not saying that Bernie had any messages like this. I don't believe he did. But what if Bernie had some lascivious text messages with people? Who gets those text messages? Who has access to those text messages? And then I came across an article in the New York Times, and this led me down a whole other rabbit hole. Okay, follow me here. The New York Times last week reported on the forthcoming publication of a new unauthorized biography of the late TV star Anthony Bourdain. That's the chef. He had the show on CNN. He interviewed Obama. He was one of those guys. I I was never that big of a fan, but my friend Joe Borelli, for instance, loved him. Uh, a lot of people were just big fans of his, and a lot of people were interested in him. Successful author, did a lot of things. And he killed himself four years ago, died by suicide. And the New York Times story included one particularly striking detail about the author's sourcing. Quote, the book's most revealing material comes from files and messages pulled from Mr. Bourdain's phone and laptop, both of which are part of the estate. Whoa. Hold the phone. So I read this interesting article in Slate after coming across this New York Times article. You see how all this this goes? This is why it takes me so long to prepare for the show, because you have to read one article, then another, then another. You just go down this rabbit hole. And Heather Schwedell writes for uh, Slate.com, they have a column called Future Tense, where they explore issues related to technology in the future. It's kind of interesting. There's some interesting topics they cover. So if you think about that, it would be easy to skip right over that section of the New York Times article and wade further into the controversy surrounding the book. But if you get to thinking about it, it raises some pretty interesting and potentially alarming questions, first among them. If Anthony Bourdain's text messages became part of his estate when he died, does that mean that my text messages will become part of my estate when I die? And if so, does that mean that whoever controls my estate will be able to read all my text messages when I'm dead? Further, could that person just go ahead and allow these personal communiques to be published for all to see. So it's not clear to what extent these the last question, the question about the book, applies to the Bourdain scenario. The author told the New York Times he got Bourdain's materials from a confidential source, though Bourdain's ex-wife 
who controls the estate, has reportedly not pushed back at their use. So there are some people, and they were profile they were talked to in this slate piece. There are some people whose job it is to think about these kinds of things. Naomi Khan, a professor at the University of Virginia School of Law, who has written about the digital afterlife, explained that this problem is not as novel as it might seem. Before digital communication, this is a quote, before digital communication, when someone was administering your estate, they would find the dirty laundry, referring to any physical items like bank statements, but also love letters and journals. Text messages and emails are just the modern incarnation of these kinds of materials. Still, as to whether the person administering your estate can see all of your messages after you're gone, the answer is complicated. And laws vary from state to state. As uh, Khan wrote in 2017, a majority of states have passed something called the... See, this was all new to me. All new to me. A majority of states have passed something called the Uniform Fiduciary Access to Digital Act, which in many, but not all cases, protects the content from being accessed until the deceased has specifically designated another person to have access upon their death. So whether the person administering administering your estate would be able to share these materials with the public or use them for some other purpose is a separate question that we can consider. But in general, according to Khan, in the United States, when someone dies, the person who administers their estate has a fiduciary responsibility to the estate. That person's responsibility is to the person who dies. In other words, they have to act in the best interests of the deceased and not for personal gain. Of course, one might argue that making a person's private communications public could be acting in that person's best interests in the sense that their voice is being preserved, especially with a figure like Anthony Bourdain or Bernard McGurk, for that matter. It's also possible that this material could fall into the wrong hands, uh, like a, if it's hacked or something, or something similar. In the end, there's only really one way to guarantee that no one gets your text messages after you die, with a will. And uh, my wife and I just did our will, and I don't think there was any provision for this. I have to look into that. I'm going to have to think about what I want. And I'm sure she'll have to think about what she wants because I have a lot of private communications in this. I don't know that I'd want these plastered all, although if my wife is administering my estate, I would trust her to determine, okay, Frank would want this out there or he would not want this out there. Um, Or when I'm on my deathbed, let's say I'm in a horrible car accident going home today. Should I spend my last few minutes of life deleting text messages that I don't want people to see? Um. So it is possible that Bourdain had a will or trust that explicitly made his texts and emails part of his estate, which would make his situation a lot less ambiguous. But what this Professor Kahn recommended that everyone consider doing is include your preferences about your digital estates in your will. In such a document, you could specify that you do not want any material from it published but also perhaps that you do not want it to be accessible to anyone at all. In addition to a will, Khan suggested looking into the settings of the platforms you use for communication. Quote, the best thing to do would be to fill out 
that Google inactive account manager, if you have a Gmail account, and to go onto Facebook and say, I do or do not want these things to happen when I cannot manage my account. As of 2016, Bourdain was an iPhone user, and Apple has an online option to request access to a deceased friend or family member's account. So I'm curious if, after hearing about this, you think, A, the law needs to be updated or changed to either nationally or in a state-by-state basis to make certain arrangements for who can access your text messages and emails and Facebook messages, your digital private communications after you die, 800-848-9222. And two, I'm curious, now that you know you have to specify what you want to become, of your digital communications, what would you do? What would, are you going to say, all right, I don't want any of my communications out there, or are you going to leave it to the discretion of the executor of your estate to determine, okay, these communications can be public, these communications can't be public? 800-848-9222. I am a great student. I wouldn't by any means say that I'm a scholar, but I am a great student of presidential history and history in general. And one of the things that I've been fascinated by is the letters that presidents have written and the letters that other historical figures like Alexander Hamilton and Benjamin Franklin have written. And one of the things that I'm always interested in is how often key historical figures had their letters burned after they were dead. Well, obviously, you know, when they died, their wives, mostly, some cases their children, had access to these letters. And in many cases, they burned these letters to protect the privacy of the decedent. So I'm curious, now that you kind of know the stakes, uh, if you're like me, you probably hadn't thought about this. But now that you know the stakes, what would you do in terms of your own digital communications? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. You're going to make specific uh, provisions for who gets to access your digital estate. Are you going to update your will accordingly to make, you know, make uh, provisions as to who accesses your digital estate? Are you okay with everything being out there? Are you okay with nothing being out there? Uh, Take any of those questions as they come. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Speaking of Bernard McGurk, uh, they did do a live stream of Bernard McGurk's funeral yesterday. And uh, one of the people that gave one of the key eulogies was his uh, partner and longtime friend, Bernard, uh, excuse me, uh, Sid Rosenberg, who spoke and uh, spoke very movingly. Uh, this is a little bit of what uh, Sid Rosenberg said at the Bernie McGurk funeral yesterday. The last six and a half years has been a dream for me. The last 10 months and today feels a little bit more like a nightmare. But that's only if we all allow that to be the case. I choose and I urge all of you to choose to celebrate a great man and rejoice and the many memories we've all collected being around Bernard McGurk. So he's uh, really going to be missed, not only by 
all of us that work with him, by uh, but by all the people that listen to him on a regular basis. And if you're interested in hearing more about Bernie's life and legacy, today, uh, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., there is going to be a whole day-long memorial, a tribute to him about uh, featuring a lot of his colleagues and a lot of other folks that knew Bernie both on the air and off the air. Uh, it's presented by Red Apple Audio Networks, and you can listen at uh, wabcradio.com if you live outside of the New York area, or you can if you're in the um, if you're in the vicinity of my of uh, the WABC signal in New York, you could just go on to seventy seven WABC. It has a lot of interesting folks that are going to be a part of this. Charles McCord, for instance, a longtime sidekick and news person for uh, Don Imus. Chris Mad Dog Russo, uh, Bo Deedle, the mayor of the city of New York, Eric Adams, Mike Breen, Warner Wolf, and a whole lot of others. And uh, I, I don't know who's a surprise and who's not a surprise, but I've heard about a number of people that are going to be participating in this uh, in this tribute. And it's definitely going to be something that you're going to want to be listening to. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on uh, your digital as- your digital estate after you after you die. Matt Blaze, what's your take? What are you doing when you die in terms of your digital communications? I just look back to see how far back my text messages go. Because remember, there was a point in time when once you got a new phone, your text messages went away. Yeah. So I looked, and I have text messages going back to 2014. And they're not every text message. It's far and few in between. But I, I don't know. I, I, I really don't care. If, what do I have to hide in my text messages? I don't really have anything. Yeah, so well, it doesn't bother you, me. You know, I, I, uh, I really don't either, I don't think. But I don't really feel like going through all of my text messages with everybody and seeing if there's anything that I don't want out there. Now, I do trust my wife to kind of judge, all right, Frank would want this out there, would not want this out there. But um, I don't know. I don't really feel like going through all this and determining, all right, this this would be okay to be published, this would not be. So I am almost more of the impression, you know, I do all my public communication, all the, all the communication that I want public, I do it here on the radio and occasionally on social media. If there's something I want the world to know, I I bring it to your attention. Otherwise... You know, I don't. So I really wouldn't want something that was intended to be a private communication to be, you know, on uh, on display posthumously, it, it, either by a biographer or anybody else. So my inclination is I am going to make all of this, uh, all this public. I mean, excuse me, m- m- all this private. And I am not going to have any of my communications uh, out there. Kenneth, what's your story? How, how do you view this uh, this debate of, about how to deal with your digital estate? I feel like I feel like once I'm dead, I'm dead. So, so you don't care. It doesn't really matter what they find after the fact. Well, what are they going to find? What kind of things? I mean, they wouldn't find anything on me. But I'm just saying in general. All right. Well, uh, I I do care. And so I am going to be taking the step to make sure these communications are private. Uh, curious what you want to do. 800-848-9222. Hey, coming up in uh, just a couple of minutes, we're going to talk about sports gambling. Sports gambling has absolutely exploded. I was watching the Yankee game last night, and I was amazed. Not amazed, really, because this has become sort of par for the course. I was. I noted how 
these ads all over the place are for sports betting websites. And now that it's been made legal all over the place, you are seeing an explosion in legal sports betting. And uh, even a lot of youngsters have sports betting accounts that uh, they're watching these games, no interest in who wins and who loses, just an interest in what that means for their sports bets. So we're going to get to talk with a gentleman, Joel Soper, who had a multi-million dollar business and lost it all due to an addiction to sports gambling. So he's got a new memoir out in which he deals with some of this. We're going to talk to him in a few minutes. Uh, but meanwhile, if you want to comment on uh, have your, what, what you want to see happen in terms of either the law or your own digital estate, give me a call, 800-848-9222. Um, Freddie is in Flushing. Hello, Freddie. Hey, how are you, Frank? Good. Um, actually, I have a digital will. Um, I, I, have, I run a big business, actually three of them to be exact. So I have a kill switch on my uh, on my phone. What that means is that I have my lawyer that if I die, I have three phones. If I die, that my personal phone, my wife gets, and my two business ones are to be destroyed. Hmm. And the, the reason for that is because things could be misconstrued and taken right. out of context. Sure, that's what I'm um, worried about as well. Right. Like, you know what I mean? So even my wife seeing it, my, and it's got, I'm extremely faithful to my wife. Yeah, no, no, yeah, I'm not questioning it, Freddie, sure. It's no, I didn't think you watched. I want to be clear. It's not yeah. to hide from her. It's if she reads them, it will be misconstrued. So, just kind of summing that up, I have that also. What I have is my Facebook gets shut down, deactivated completely. My Google, I have that. That gets white. That's all in my will. So, I actually had to update the will to and put all that in there. So, this way, there's nothing that will go into the public domain because there's a lot of financial information in there that uh, people like to get their hands on. So um, not meaning my money, but the information. So they're basically, they're called kill switches. So if you go to a lawyer, a good one, they'll actually, they know what that means. That means that what do you want it to be, you know, obviously it speaks for itself. What do you want gone? What do you don't? So it, it kind of works. It works for me. It makes me sleep at night. Well, that's interesting, Freddie. See, I would want anything that I've posted on social media, on Facebook or Twitter or, or Instagram or wherever, I would want that to remain in the digital sphere, but any private communications, meaning I'm talking to you privately off the air, I would want that to die with me. Is there a, there, there's a way to do that legally? Yes, there is, correct. There is a way legally, and I'm going to answer. I'm not a lawyer, but I can answer that. You can do exactly that because you're a public figure. So if you – I'm not a public figure. I just run – like I said, and I'm not being arrogant when I said I run a very, very big company. So for me, I'm not public, but in the financial world, I am. Sure. You, on the other hand, you can put that in your will. Your lawyer by law has to follow that. So there technically isn't a law in place, but it holds up in probate court. It will hold up. Do you so think they words, should update the the laws? Absolutely. How and absolutely. and what should they do? What should the law say? Just like I said, to have the person be able to. In other words, I don't know how the law would be written, and it should pass because everybody would, especially politicians, um, they would have what I just said that it's instituted in already a will right. to where lawyers, the average lawyer that costs five hundred dollars, not that they're out there, but just kind of using a small number, they even know the law. So so, yes, I believe without question it should be in there. Right. Uh, but like I said, on your case, 
it makes sense. You want your private stuff with you because you're a public figure. Like I said, people know you. Um, me, on the other hand, is different. I just my wife. My wife doesn't even want my phone. I was going to ask you a question, and I know I've been taking up a lot of time. I'm sorry about that. But I was going to ask you, how do you how do you feel uh, about your phone? I mean, is it that like you? I don't even want to give it to my wife, and not because I want to hide something. Because again, I don't want her to take it out of context. She doesn't want it. She said, Freddie, when you die, that's it. I'm throwing it out because I don't want to see anything that I might not understand and can hurt me. You, you kind of see where I'm going with Yeah, this? I do. Uh, I, kinda, I, think I, feel, I, think, I think I feel similarly uh, to you. I, I, I don't really want other people looking at my private communication. What about your wife? Yeah, I mean, look, if there's anybody that I'm comfortable looking at it, it would be her. But I think uh, for the same reasons that you've stated, I don't necessarily want her uh, analyzing all of my communication. But she's never, really, she's never really expressed an interest in looking at my phone, though, honestly. Mine's as well. But I have a great question for you, I yeah. think. You're t- and again, I don't want to know your private business, but you must have gotten to a fight with your wife and texted your friend. One hundred percent, absolutely. Which leads to my right, so it leads to my point. You know, do you really want to give that phone to your wife? And again, it's not something that could be that bad, but I feel you don't. You know, she would take it out of context. I don't know your wife. I'm just saying she could take it out of context like my wife could. Yeah, no, and absolutely, what- absolutely. I wouldn't want to hurt her feelings posthumously or exactly. anything along those lines. Freddie, great call. Oh, thank that you. Happened two years ago. Take care. Yeah, Frank. Freddie, thank you. And use some of the advertising dollars for those three big businesses to advertise on our show, Freddie. Actually, I was up to, I could do that privately. There's a thing finesse on Twitter that I have. I'll send you one. Good. We'll stay in touch. Thank you, Freddie. 800 848 9222. You know, it's funny. I had a friend, my friend Gary. He's still still around, uh, but he said that um, he told his brother that if he ever dies, because my friend Gary had a role where he would deal with a lot of dead people's estates and he would encounter a lot of embarrassing material. And he said to his brother that if he ever dies, he has a box of things that he wants his brother to find and discard, destroy. And I think it was like pornography and stuff. I don't know if there were also private communications in there, but it becomes a much tougher thing to do. Once we're talking about the world of phones and things of that nature, and it's funny because we were the, this is 15 years ago this conversation, but Gary was telling me about this, and my friend Jim was in the room, and my friend Jim said the same thing that he had a sort of a private box that he wants destroyed if uh, he ever were to perish, which I thought was interesting. All right, um, you find me on Twitter. At Frank Morano, now that I know what I'm doing here, I will absolutely make sure that your communications with me remain private after I die. And uh, you when you can rest assured that uh, that'll be the case. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. Before we get to Joel Soper, let me say hello to Gino in Brooklyn. Hello, Gino. What's up? I'm in Florida to speak, as, we, as I promised. Wonderful. The, wonderful. Um, your estate is your estate, right? So everything that you made public already, like your Facebook and your social media posts, that's all out there in the public domain. But the things in your phone, that's going to go to the next of kin who's designated to manage your estate. So, and that's automatic. The well, it's not. It's not automatic. It depends if the states have uh, adopted this uniform, uh, this uniform fiduciary digital act. But that—that's still your possession right? right so like any other of your possessions it becomes automatically yours and yours until you stipulate otherwise 
It's yours. Just like somebody can't give away your car or, or, or anything yeah. else that you're owned. Yeah, you're, I, I think right? a- according to Professor Khan here, I think it's a little bit more, uh, a little bit more complicated than, than you're making it sound. And, to, and real quick, what happens all the time is people die, they're divorced, they're separated from their wives that they hate or husbands, and then they die without the divorce being final, and that person now controls the whole estate, and that's legal too. Yeah. It just takes years for it to resolve. You, you know, I know someone that you mentioned, I didn't think of this, I know someone that that, that happened to, and I guarantee you... Who is one of them. Th- who did? For, Anthony Bourdain is one right, of them. Exactly. So right, could, right. But uh, she could be releasing she could be releasing things to angle things in her in her, in her head. No question about it. No question about it. Thank you, Gino. Uh, real quick, Paul in Queens. Hello, Paul. Hey, how are you, Frank? Thanks. Great show, by the way. Thanks. Um, yeah, I was just you guys hit the point I that I was gonna come to. You know, um I have so many old phones that I've had for you know, since way back when. And I would never, ever give them up or give them to anybody else. And I do have somebody who would actually destroy all those things should I die. But um, never trade anything in like that or, you know, it's your stuff. It's your personal life. I would never, ever want, like the last gentleman said, it could get misconstrued. You you know, somebody could hear something or, or you're listening to music and somebody says, why would this guy listen to this type of music? Stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely anyway, right, Paul. great Paul, show. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. Joel Soper, author of uh, a new memoir, which is getting a lot of attention, called Never Enough Zeros, all about the highs and lows of the world of sports gambling, joins us straight ahead. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Lost $200 on the Mets last week, and of course now I'm wishing they never legalized sports gambling. Sort of. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight, I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, Joel Soper is an interesting guy. He is uh, the author of a new gambling memoir 
called Never Enough Zeros, and it deals with the highs of live sports betting and the dark side of gambling addiction. Uh, Joel is somebody that had a very successful career and lost uh, just about all of it due to a uh, gambling addiction. Uh, Very pleased to welcome Joel Soper. Joel, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I know it's a tough hour. (laughs) <laughs> You're welcome, Frank. Thank you for having me. Sure thing. So when did you first get into sports gambling? Well, I first got into sports gambling when I was 16, and I was working for a bookmaker in the uh, city of Detroit. And he basically had me writing down the bets because back in the day, that's how you did it. They'd call into the bookie. You would take their action, and you would write it down. And there was only two things you could bet on, either the the total of the game or the side of the game. So you could either, either bet the Giants, let's say, minus three or the over 40. That was it. And then when did you find that it became problematic for you? Well, it started when I was in college, when I was uh, – doing illegal activities to finance my gambling. So that's, you know, kind of the first red flag that I have. And then it just got progressively worse as I got older. And what sort of illegal activities were you doing in college? I was selling drugs to finance my gambling habit. And at the end of my you know freshman year, I got in trouble and I caught a uh, conspiracy to possess three ounces of cocaine charge, and um, luckily, I only got lifetime probation, where most of the people that got the same charge went to jail for two or three years. Uh, no, I can imagine. That is that is lucky. Um, yeah. By the time that you were out of college, how had you done sort of over the course of your lifetime in terms of sports gambling uh, were you a net winner a net loser how much of a net winner how much of a net loser you know i would say that i was definitely a net loser and um as far as the dollar amounts you know before i started my business in california you know they were probably already close to a hundred thousand dollars wow okay and then what was your business what you what business did you go into I owned a company called Aerations Only in San Diego, and basically what it was was a lawn aeration business. But the kicker is is that my verbal skills and my sales skills are so good that I was able to aerate about 50 lawns a day, every day. So I was making some very good money. Uh, Ballpark, how much could you make in in a given year at your height of this business? Uh, this business, I made close to $1.5 million a year. Wow. And so of the $1.5 million uh, that you're you're making in lawn care and everything, yeah. about how much are you gambling? Well, of the $1.5 million, I probably gambled $2.5 million. So that means not only did I lose the $1.5 million, I owed Oof. bookies another million. And this is at a time when sports gambling – everywhere outside of Las Vegas pretty much, is illegal, right? That's absolutely correct. So I was dealing with some of the most uh, shadiest and not-so-nice people when I was gambling um, those years. And uh, I ended up getting, you know, a lot of things bad happening to me from, you know, breaking ribs of mine to, 
you know, concussions and, and you name it. You know, I was definitely dealing with some rough people. Yeah. Uh, talking with Joel Soper, he's the author of the book, Never Enough Zeros, which is uh, more relevant than ever, given what's going on in terms of the growth of legal sports betting. Uh, maybe you're not going to uh, get your ribs broken if you owe uh, if you owe DraftKings a lot of money, but uh, certainly it could put you in a, a precarious situation. So, Joel, how did it all come uh, to a head for you? How did you get out of this spiral of uh, earning all this money and losing even more, uh, get, owing money to the wrong people and getting beat up or assaulted for it? How did it end? Well, it ended by me sending my selling my business in San Diego to pay them off. And then after I did that, you know, I had an additional million and a half and, you know, I went through all of that, which I gambled away. And uh, then I ended up stealing from my old customers, the ones that I had just sold and I ended up going to jail. So that's how it ended for that period of time. You know, one of the things that we've seen uh, is, I alluded to this, since the Supreme Court's decision on this, we've seen sports betting, legal sports betting, really grow. It's legal not just in Nevada, but um, New York, New Jersey. Then it went even further. They legalized electronic sports betting so that you don't even have to go to a teller or anything. You could do all this stuff from a computer or from your mobile phone. You don't even have to get out of bed and you could bet all sorts of money. In your view, how much of a game changer is this? uh, How much, if you know, how much has sports betting grown in this country in recent years? Oh, it's, it's huge. Ridiculously. The, I think what transpired um, was when they came out with the live betting. That was, for me, the crack cocaine, because now you don't have to wait a whole game to see if you win your money. For example, let's say you're betting a football game. You used to have to wait three to four hours. Now, with the live betting, you can bet the first quarter. I mean, you could bet every series of the game. There's got there, There's over 150. 50 to 200 propositions on every game as the game is being played. So that was the game changer. That, at least for me, made it so I couldn't even focus on business anymore and uh, basically kept me up from, you know, the whole night because I couldn't sleep because they had all this different action. Talking with Joel Soper, author of the the book Never Enough Zeros, a fellow that dealt with uh, a sport addiction to sports gambling for about 35 years cost him millions of dollars. I- explain to folks, aside from the financial aspect of this, mm-hmm. what this does. And obviously you had to deal with the legal am- ramifications since you were right. stealing to feed your, your gambling addiction. What does this do to other aspects of your life, your health, your relationships, your your other interests? What kind of damage does this do to someone's life? Absolutely devastates it. Um, I could not do anything except make my sales and gamble. That was it. So there was no time for relationships. There was no time to build friendships with people because you're constantly in action. Now, as far as the physical side of it, I'm overweight. I am gray hair, the whole front, back, and side. I have lines on my face because I couldn't sleep. 
And it just, it devastated me. I didn't have time to eat healthy. So I was always getting fast food and drinking sodas to, to stay up, to stay in action. Because once this thing gets a hold of you, it doesn't let go. And, and you made a great point earlier that you might not catch a beating anymore, but, you know, financially you're going to catch a beating. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough, tough addiction once it gets to that point. So you have to know when you're at that point. Yeah, and if people want to know more about the book or uh, even order a copy, they can go to the website neveronoughzeros.com. That's neveronoughzeros.com. It's interesting. I was watching the Yankee game last night, and I noted because I'd done some homework in preparation for our interview right before, I noted how much of the game is dominated by ads for sports betting websites. Not only are they TV ads, but in the stadium itself, right behind home plate, there's a thing for DraftKings. And it's not just DraftKings, it's FanDuel and all sorts of other things. I'm curious if you have a take on... What has the explosion in legal sports betting meant for the sports leagues themselves? I think the leagues probably view it as a positive because you have a lot more people watching the games even after their teams are out of contention or maybe even if they're not a fan of the team. But what's your perspective on what the legalization and the increase in sports betting has meant for the for the sports leagues themselves? Well, I think that, you know, everything is driven by the sports gambling. I mean, that's why, you know, the players get so so much money. That's why the owners and, you know, everybody involved in the organizations get so much money because for the longest time, sports gambling has been the engine that's kind of driven the revenue. It just was on, you know, the backside. Now, everybody's seeing it out in the open. You know, they have the advertisements everywhere. So now these kids, you know, can easily go and bet online where, you know, obviously when you and I were younger, you'd have to find a book. You'd have to ask people and navigate to try to get into that world. Now the doors open to that world. And, you know, these kids and uh, other people, you know, they don't have a chance. And it's just it's it's fueling the sports franchises and you're going to see within the next couple of years that every team, every stadium is going to have a sports book inside the stadium. Mm. We talked about the movement from this being an illegal activity to being a legal activity. And right. a lot of folks may be hearing this conversation and say, all right, you know, this was clearly an indication of someone who is a problem gambler. But right. at least if someone deals with a gambling to sports addiction, uh, uh, an addiction to sports gambling now, they're not going to have to worry about being being beaten up or assaulted by some thug. And right. there was a recognition. And this was one of the arguments pushed by people like Chris Christie, who was a prosecutor, obviously. There was a recognition on the part of policymakers that, look, people want to bet on football and other sports anyway. Why should it not be able to be done legally so this way at least the state can make a little bit of money instead of a bunch of gangsters making that money? Is that logic flawed in in your view? It is. And and let me tell you why I think it is. I mean, yes, like we've talked about a couple times already the people are not going to catch a beating and end up in, you know, the hospitals like I did. But what you're going to see, and this is my own opinion, is the criminality is going to go up because what happens 
when you get addicted to the sports gambling is you end up losing because obviously the books have the edge. So then once you lose all your money, then you have to figure out a way to get it. The first line of offense is usually the family and the friends, right? Because you can manipulate them and you can convince them to give you the money. Now, eventually they're going to be sick and tired of giving you money. So that's going to stop. So now you have nowhere to go. So that's where the criminality aspect comes in, where they're going to have to lie, cheat, and steal to get money. And that's going to end up with them eventually ending up in jail like I did. And and it's going to be, a, I think, a big problem. Um, how bad has it gotten with youth sports? Uh, with, with not in terms of betting on Little League, but younger people being able to place bets on sporting events. It's horrible. I mean, it's it's wide open. It's it's the wild, wild west when it comes to that. I mean, they just want your money. This whole thing's driven on greed because, you know, like you said, they were losing all this money to these these thugs and criminals and, you know, offshore books. So they wanted that money and they don't care, you know, who they attract and what it does to them. So I just think that it's really a bad Thing to have all this legalization of it, but they're going to do it because of the, the money that's involved. Mm. Uh, talking with Joel Soper's book, Never Enough Zeros. How, if at all, is sports gambling different from the world of gambling in, say, a casino, B- betting on blackjack, betting on poker? Is sports gambling a different beast? You know, I mean, it's all the same end result. But the sports betting, at least for me and and the guys that I know that did it, we felt that we had an edge. Okay, obviously I didn't, but we thought we did. We thought we were smart, that we could handicap the games and we can come up with the winners. And we'd look at it like, all right, it's 50-50 if I'm going to win or not, where you look at the casinos and they're like – I don't know the exact percentages, but they're at more of a disadvantage. But it's the same thing. It's the same dopamine rush, and it's the same action. It's just it's a different form of gambling. And if uh, what are you doing now? If people aside from talking about this book and talking about uh, sports addiction, uh, sports gambling addiction generally, where are you in life these days? Well, um, I have restarted a business in Los Angeles, California, um, in the landscaping industry again. And, um, you know, it's it's done well, thankfully. But I just quit gambling six and a half months ago. So I literally just started to, to build up again and, uh, you know, still dealing with some of the aftershocks that you, know, you have to deal with when, you know, you're in that sports gambling world. But, you know, I'm in a good place right now, and uh, business is going good, and um, I'm trying to eat better, and I'm trying to focus on my my mental health. Um, how does someone – I mentioned um, placing a bet on the Mets last week. I'm right. currently in the midst of emailing a, um, you know, a, a, a friend about a friendly wager on a political race that's happening this year. Sure. How does someone know – 
if they've crossed the line to problem gambling addiction. I've known people who clearly have a a problem gambling addiction, but I don't know that I could tell you when they cross that line from having some fun with it to it taking over their lives. If people are listening to our conversation now and they bet on sports or have a, a husband or a friend that bets on sports, how do they know when that becomes problematic? I think there's there's two ways, um, and this is the first one. It's it's kind of it's funny, but it's sad. Um, I grew up in Detroit, and I was a huge Detroit sports fan. You know, Tigers, Lions, Red Wings, um, Pistons. Once I started really betting a lot, and those teams would lose money for me, I despised my hometown teams, and. Instead of becoming, you know, a fan, I became a addict, mm. and it was just all, the only team that I liked was the one that I had money on. And then, obviously, you know, it's a problem when you're, you know, losing time from work and you're getting fired, or your relationships are starting to crumble because you're not focused on, you know, spending time with your loved ones, and it just it unravels real quick too, and that's that's scary. Uh, fair enough. Well, I wish you uh, the best of luck. Good luck getting putting your life back together. Congratulations on the book. I hope everybody checks it out. It's called Never Enough Zeros. Uh, people can go to the website neverenoughzeros.com. Joel Soper, uh, maybe we'll talk to you as this this situation pops up again between now and the Super Bowl quite often. Yeah, I would love that big fan of yours, and I appreciate the time tonight. Well, that's awfully nice of you, Joel. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. If you don't want to waste all your money on gambling, uh, you can help in my efforts uh, with the National Psoriasis Foundation walk this week, uh, this Sunday. If you want to walk with me as part of my team, the Frank Footers, or if you just want to make a small donation, I have uh, posted a link on my Facebook page just now. You can go to Facebook.com slash 
Morano fan. That's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. We also have a Facebook group that you can join uh, where it's meant to be a, a discussion of the subjects that come up on this show. And one person, Joel, yesterday, wrote a question to me. I try to respond to the questions that come up on there on the air rather than in the Facebook group because there's just so much sniping that goes on among the people in the Facebook group. And People get very petty very quickly. I don't understand it. But Joel writes, Frank Morano, is there any chance you would ever consider politics? The country could use someone of your caliber, please. Now, um, I have been involved in politics most of my life. I've never run for elective public office, but I've run for party office many times. And really, I found it very frustrating, uh, to be honest. And in terms of whether I would ever run for office, that's a definite maybe, but really it's probably a no. And uh, R- Ralph Nader, who's one of the people that I look up to the most, was on the Mike Douglas show with Yoko Ono and John Lennon sitting next to him in 1972 when he was asked that question, and this is what he said. Yeah. running for president? No. Why? There's a good reason. I think that uh, the political system, the country today, is so encrusted with bureaucracy and special interests and waste and inefficiency that what you have to do is step back and start by trying to help organize people and trying to get them to see citizenship as a profession. And then, out of this kind of grassroots effort, will come better candidates. Now, I completely agree with Nader there. Unfortunately, I think the situation has gotten so much worse over the course of the last half century. Now, Ralph Nader obviously did choose to run for office uh, almost about 28 years later after making those comments. So he kind of thought maybe uh, the being a public citizen wasn't enough to get the job done at some point. But I think I could have a lot more of an impact uh, helping educate people on the radio. And it's a lot more fun uh, being on the radio than it is running for office. So um, I, I have a lot of friends that are in politics and they spend their entire weekend not with their family, not enjoying their Saturday. They spend it getting up super early to go to a ribbon cutting or something along those lines. It's not for me. I'm having way too much fun being on the radio. But I appreciate the thought, Joel. That's very kind of you. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Gray, your influence counts. Be sure to use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Sound of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, hey, speaking of uh, of politics, 
I, I generally try to avoid too much politics on this show because there's just so much of it on the radio dial. I feel if there's ever a time where people need a break from wall-to-wall political political discussion, it's the four hours in the middle of the night where I'm on the air. Also, I really have found, especially the last few years, that politics has served as a divisive force in people's lives and it's caused families to even not want to talk with one another. So one of the things, it's sort of my little way of kind of healing the world is by finding ways that folks can connect with one another on issues that have nothing to do with politics. Because if you want to make someone see red, say the word Trump or say the word Biden, and then half the country, it maybe a third of the country is ready to start foaming at the mouth because they dislike that person. And then a third of the country just tunes out because they're turned off by the polarization. So I think one of my really life goals, not just a radio goal, but one of my life goals is to help people connect over things like food, uh, movies, uh, other radio shows, television shows, podcasts, books, uh, common interests, pickleball, ping pong, uh, aliens, right? Um, the workplace, the kind of issues that everybody deals with on a regular basis, parenting, and then Once people see that they're on the same page with someone when it comes to a sports team or whatever else the case may be, then maybe they won't be ready to throw rocks at one another if they're um, differing in terms of uh, politics. And I've seen it particularly this election cycle. I see a lot of folks willing to forgive almost anything their candidate does or has done in their past, because if that candidate's elected, they're going to vote the right way. And I think that's just so sad, quite frankly. And uh, on that Facebook post that I mentioned, which you could which you could um, find in their Facebook group, someone said, when someone made the point, oh, Frank should run for office, somebody said, who cares, vote Republican. Now, I thought that was such a – and again, Democrats are just as bad. But um, I thought that was such a sad thing because think about what that means. doesn't matter who the candidate is. You're just saying vote Republican no matter what. Now, I think that's awful. I think you should actually care about the kinds of people that are running for office. And that is why yesterday was my most exciting political day of the year. Because the first step in something that I have been hoping for, literally praying for, even though people may think this is a silly thing to pray for, and really counting on as one of the things that may be able to save our republic, the first step in that occurred yesterday. One of my favorite people in public life, the former Democratic congresswoman from Hawaii, Tulsi Gabbard, who also happens to be a decorated officer in the U.S. Army Reserves, a woman who was the first Hindu member of Congress, the first Samoan American voting member of Congress, a former candidate for the Democratic nomination for president and the former vice chairperson of the Democratic National Committee and someone who I not only agree with on issue after issue, but someone who I find just tremendously inspiring 
and someone who has a lot of the ish- the answers to a lot of the vexing problems facing our country, not only in terms of how to deal with XYZ problem, but the kind of approach necessary to deal with XYZ problem. In my view, Tulsi Gabbard is a real unifier. Well, yesterday, Tulsi Gabbard made the announcement that I've been waiting for for years, that she is leaving the Democratic Party. I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that's under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers who are driven by cowardly wokeness, who divide us by racializing every issue and stoking anti-white racism, who actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution, who are hostile to people of faith and spirituality, who demonize the police but protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans, who believe in open borders, who weaponize the national security state to go after their political opponents, and above all, who are dragging us ever closer to nuclear war. Now, I believe in a government that's of the people, by the people, and for the people. Unfortunately, today's Democratic Party does not. Instead, it stands for a government that is of, by, and for the powerful elite. Now, I'm calling on my fellow common sense, independent-minded Democrats to join me in leaving the Democratic Party. If you can no longer stomach the direction that the so-called woke Democratic Party ideologues are taking our country, then I invite you to join me. I literally shouted enjoy when I saw her comments. And uh, these comments were posted yesterday on her social media channel. Uh, she also is launching a podcast that you can see on YouTube or in wherever podcasts are available called The Tulsi Gabbard Show. That is so she's left the Democratic Party. She's now an independent. And I agree with, you know, I'm a pretty liberal guy. And people have asked me over the years from time to time, why don't you become why don't you become a Democrat? I could never become a Democrat these days for all the reasons Tulsi Gabbard cited. It is a party run by elitist warmongers. It is a party that's run by people that think it's fine to give $16 billion to Ukraine without any accountability as to where it goes, even if that means prolonging a war in which all sorts of people are losing their homes and dying and bringing us closer and closer to nuclear war. And one of the things that's been so frustrating to me is that so few people are willing to call that out. Tulsi Gabbard has been one of the people that has called out this nonsense, but not just with respect to Russia and Ukraine. She's called out this nonsense when it comes to Saudi Arabia. She's called out this nonsense when it comes to uh, Syria. And she has the gumption and the backbone to actually want to pursue diplomacy. And she's not a peacenik that wants to dismantle the military. She's in the military. She's, a, a, I believe, a lieutenant colonel in the, in the Army Reserve. She's been a decorated veteran of the war in Iraq. And yet, because she's willing to do things like go to Syria, she gets lambasted as a Russian stooge or a stooge of Assad. The late Republican Senator John McCain said that Tulsi Gabbard's trip to meet with Bashar al-Assad was a trip, her trip, quote, kind of legitimizes a guy who butchered 400,000 of his own people. It was her debate with uh, Kamala Harris in 2020 
where she attacked Harris on her record as a prosecutor, and uh, she caught flack from Harris for not calling Bashar al-Assad a war criminal. Now, how is that conducive to diplomacy, calling a foreign leader a name? It's not. And there's so few people on the world stage that get that. And she criticized Trump when Trump was in bed with the Saudis. She criticized Biden when Biden kept this endless supply of money to the Zelensky government going. And I am telling you, this is the woman that I am voting for for president in 2024. I am hoping and praying that she runs as an independent candidate in 2024. And I will make the maximum allowable contribution to her candidacy. I will be wild horses could not stop me from voting for this woman for president in 2024. She every. Everything that she writes, everything that she says, everything that she does in public life, I find more endearing and um, the direction that the country needs to go. You know, I told you about that conversation that I had at my house a couple of weeks ago where I had some friends over and some family. And I asked everybody around the table, if you could make anyone in America that's eligible for the office president, who would you be? And then my sister asked me the question. And my answer was Tulsi Gabbard. So I think this is a tremendous first step. I don't know that she's going to run, but I think she will. I think she's somebody that cares about the country. And I think the circumstances exist to have a third party or an independent candidate because of the forward party and what the no labels movement is doing that will have ballot access and be able to run. I mean, if she were to pick someone like a Jim Webb, As her running mate, or even a Jesse Ventura, I know the forward party is hoping for Mark Cuban, but I don't think Mark Cuban has the kind of expertise governmentally in navigating the bureaucracy that someone like Tulsi Gabbard has. So when you have that, what happens? When you're willing to speak truth to power, what happens? When you're willing to question our billions of dollars that are flowing to the Zelensky government and not care if people call you a Russian stooge or unpatriotic, what happens? Well, of course, you get called a Russian, a Russian stooge, as was the case with uh, Jessica Tarlov. Jessica Tarlov is a Fox News contributor, and she is uh, sort of one of the Democrats on Fox News. And one of the things that often happens when you're one of the Democrats on Fox News is you kind of have to out-neocon the neocons. Because you have to show to the, the, the Fox News audience, who's mostly conservative, you have to show them that, yeah, you're tough, too. And Jessica Tarlov had to prove her mettle by bashing Tulsi Gabbard. This is from The Five yesterday. Uh, Jessica Tarlov, Fox News contributor, said the following. Tulsi Gabbard hasn't been a Democrat for a very long time. Oh, be quiet. And it's not because I'm pissed off that she criticized the 2016 primary process and, you know, upset Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She has been vindictive and spiteful and angry towards Democrats. She's attacked our infrastructure. She's, I thought, certainly in the last primary, in the 2020 primary, that she would have been a lot happier if Donald Trump had ended up winning. Um, She does things that are completely inexplicable. I'm certainly not going to sit here and say that she has any direct ties to Russia, but I don't know how you end up in a position where they refer to you as our girlfriend on Russian oh, state please. TV. You can't control Unless, that. Yes, you can. You can control what you say. How? You can, go to Russia and tell them, please well, don't say those this? things? No, you could do things like not go on television and say that what we're doing here in the U.S. in terms of the free press isn't that different from what's going on in Russia. They throw <laughs> people, journalists, out windows mm-hmm. in Russia. What happens here? Maybe you don't get to ask your question. 
She went to visit Assad in 2017 without telling the party leadership and came back and said that the people that she met supported him. This is someone guilty of terrible war crimes. Uh, Steve Bannon liked her so much that he had to get her a Trump Tower meeting right after he won the election. Well, I think the Trump administration would have been a lot better off if Steve Bannon was able to get her appointed national security advisor instead of somebody like John Bolton. And just to show you this this bipartisan global cabal of elites that does things like push for endless war. Um, Tucker Carlson had her on last night, and I had a feeling he might. So I don't always watch Tucker just because, you know, I'm busy. But I made a point of watching him yesterday because she goes on Tucker regularly. She's filled in for Tucker once or twice. And I was really taken with Tucker Carlson's opening monologue. And it was great, and you should check out the whole thing. It was really good. Traces the whole history of Tulsi Gabbard, how she went from being put on a stage by people like Nancy Pelosi, celebrated by folks like Van Jones, and to eventually, because she has the audacity to question this Russian narrative— and uh, not be intimidated by red baiters like Jessica Tarlov in the clip that you heard, um, she was called a Russian stooge and essentially a traitor by Hillary Clinton while she was running for president in 2019. And Tucker finished his opening monologue not only by criticizing the Democrats, but by criticizing the Republicans. And I want you to listen to what Tucker says here. And I think in this 40 seconds... Tucker makes the perfect case as to why Tulsi Gabbard, as an independent candidate for president, is the perfect candidate for not just disenchanted Democrats who feel like their party's controlled by globalist elites, not just independents like me who don't believe either party really speaks for the country, but for disenchanted Republicans that don't like the way things are going, particularly on a foreign policy front. Listen to what Tucker says after playing the Tulsi Gabbard um, audio that I just played you. So keep in mind, until today, this was a registered Democrat, an office holder, a standard bearer of the Democratic Party, the future of the Democratic Party from the country's most liberal state. This was a liberal Democrat. Did you hear that? Is there a single word you disagree with? Is there a single word that the Republican who represents you, who you send money to, who you vote for, would repeat in public? In other words, here you have someone who until yesterday was a member of the Democratic Party saying things the overwhelming majority of Republican voters believe, but only a tiny, a vanishingly small minority of Republican officeholders are willing to say out loud because it's too scary. Oh, it just tells you so much. It does tell you so much. Um, He's exactly right there. Tucker not only has the... Um, excuse me, Tulsi not only has the courage uh, to say things that a lot of us believe, but she does it in a way in politicians in both parties are afraid to say this. So she's got my vote as an independent candidate for president in 2024. I hope she runs. And uh, I think it would be great. Uh, we're still trying to get her on the show. I don't know why she hasn't come on yet. Hopefully she'll come on soon now that she is an independent. But uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. It is interesting, though. She was on the uh, Joe Rogan show podcast yesterday, which is another very popular podcast, and she was continuing to explain her decision. Her views really aren't changing. I would argue that just like a lot of folks that have left the Republican and the Democratic Party over the years, Andrew Yang also comes to mind, 
it's the party that's left her. She still is very progressive on uh, issues like uh, single-payer health care, for instance. She supported uh, Bernie Sanders, not considered a conservative by any means. But it goes to show you how much the Democratic Party has morphed into a party that exists to do nothing but serve their special interest masters. So I'm very excited about this, and uh, I am uh, really hopeful, more so than I have been in a long time, about the direction of the country now that we're seeing independent, fiery, passionate, brilliant people like uh, Tulsi Gabbard ditch the major parties and join the growing independent plurality that's just fed up with politics as usual, that's fed up with the foreign policy establishment as usual. And uh, I'm really I'm really excited about this. Yang has ditched his uh, Democratic clothes. Tulsi Gabbard has. And I'd love to see a few other Democrats and Republicans that uh, speak for a lot of these issues do the same thing. We'll see where it goes. If you want to comment, you can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Somebody else, though, uh, that I've been a big fan of for a long time, literally, I think, my entire life, has uh, passed away. Angela Lansbury, the beloved star of uh, Murder, She Wrote, but also the Manchurian Candidate, another great film called Gaslight. She has passed away, as she was even a voice in uh, the Beauty and the Beast animated film. She has passed away at the age of 96 years old. She, of course, uh, I think most people the last few decades remember her best from her role on Murder, She Wrote. Actually, I expected to find something missing. And here it is, the spot where the mesh was torn away and caught in the service pin. Barkin people. So you figured it all out. Oh, there are still a lot of gaps, Tina. For one, I can only guess that Wilson and Hallowell's murders both had something to do with the condition of the Larkin pension plan. And as one of the trustees, I would have known all about that. Then there were the two late-night phone calls to Hallowell's hotel. I suspect it was a call from someone who wanted to know whom Wilson had phoned moments earlier, telling Hallowell of a large sum missing from the pension plan. Knowing that, the killer had to do away with Hallowell, too, then destroy the Mm. store computer records. Angela Lansbury, she could always solve a crime. You know, it's funny. I've reached out to Angela Lansbury a few times over the last couple of years uh, trying to get her on the air. And I don't know what her health has been like. Um, I mean, some women as people, in general, are in very good uh, health in their mid to late 90s. I know many of you are listening to this right now. Uh, But um, it's funny. I always my favorite guests are always the sorts of folks that people say to me, I didn't realize they were still alive. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll go on the Internet and I'll look for people that um, uh, lists that say people that you think are dead but are actually still alive. And Angela Lansbury is always near the top of that list. And I I check these lists sometimes for looking for guest ideas. And um, uh, now she finally is gone, unfortunately, and she is going to be uh, really missed as she was an incredible talent, a wonderful actress, someone uh, that really, in my view, just exuded class. Um, and uh, she was someone who was Irish, Irish and British and ultimately American, um, born in London, 
to an Irish family, and uh, she has done a great deal of work. Uh, the kind of longevity that she has had is something that any actress would or any actor would dream of. Nominated for all sorts of awards, including an Academy Award, on three occasions. So uh, I'm going to miss her, and uh, I'm glad that her legacy lives on through all the great work she's done. I have a friend of mine whose daughter is like 19 and was a huge fan of Angela Lansbury because of her Broadway work. That's a gr- another great—I didn't even mention the theater work, yeah. And she got to meet her a couple of years ago, and he posted the picture, and he said today, he said, today my house is like the day Elvis got drafted because <laughs> of the death of Angela Lansbury. <laughs> Uh, all right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Ray is in the Bronx. Hello, Ray. Yes, thank you, Frank. Um, uh, on a quick note, uh, I'll be listening to the Bernie tribute all day, and uh, I just want to touch two subjects real quick. Um, as far as JFK Jr., I totally believe. I don't know. Maybe he was trying to impress the people at the wedding he was going to. I think he was just total accident, inex- inexperienced pilot and um i think the other two theories are uh are not uh <laughs> hogwash and on joel the gambler um we are inundated with ads and tv like you said or everything everything you look at billboards everything is gambling 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 on a personal note my brother back in the 70s started with the football sheets and uh, unfortunately, I lost him in 1998. No, dr- no drugs, no drinking, but suicide. Oh, because sorry. Of gambling. He lost his. I have an eight-year-old. He lost his. My eight-year-old uh, niece, and he left behind. And um, totally gambling. Just got involved in it to uh, to no end. So I feel for Joel, and uh, I'm glad he's still with us. And um, that's just on a personal note. But uh, thanks for taking my call. Oh, so and, I'm um, sorry about your brother, Ray. That's, that's rough. Uh, that's rough. My sympathies yep. to your, your family. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Marianne is in Queens. Hello, Marianne. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm well, thanks. All right. Yes, I would like to uh, make a comment um, on Tulsi Garver, the ex-congresswoman. Sure. Um, I love the way she talks. I am a Democrat. Let me tell you, this is my this is this has been my party all my life mostly. But I will not vote in 2024 for uh, someone that was the vice chair of the National Democratic uh, Conference. This is going to be the most important elections in many years to come. So, unfortunately, even though she's from the party that I belong to. I would not give her a vote. Well, I have to be very careful. Okay, well, I understand that, Marianne. Um, and you, I think you have to look, and thanks for the call, uh, as to the reasons she resigned as the vice chair of the DNC. She could not support Hillary Clinton. So because she couldn't support her party's nominee, she chose to resign as the vice chair of the DNC. So to me, she resigned from a leadership role uh, for... Very legitimate philosophical reasons. So uh, to me, the fact that she was in that position and gave it up for principle, I think that says a lot about her personally. 
800-848-9222. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah, Chelsea yes, hey. Gabbard is fantastic. Chelsea. I uh, <clears throat> I think, well, maybe she should have ran for president, but I don't think she would have people to endorse her for it, you know. But that's the kind of logic we need. We need somebody with their head straight on, and we need somebody that tells it the way it is. And God bless her. Amen. Amen, Tom. Thank you. Uh, You know, it's funny. I think it's become, you know, difficult to find Tulsi. She's almost finding an an elected official like Tulsi Gabbard who opposes all this wokeness and political correct BS um, and at the same time opposes endless war in places like Ukraine and Iraq and Afghanistan and at the same time is willing to – tell the truth about the Saudis, it's so rare. Uh, to me, she's a, a gem. I think she's a national treasure. Um, for all the reasons I stated, I don't want to repeat everything I said. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, I want to uh, mention something on the on the gambling interview. But first on, on Tulsi, uh, it is disgusting that, for example, Bill Gates is based run the country through Anthony Fauci. That's number one. And then George Soros picked Kamala Harris, basically, as the vice president. So she's right about that, about these uh, sick billionaires uh, having so much sway on the government. But on the gambling thing, you know, my brother did a whole season of the track, rarely going, but did the bets and check the next day how he did in the paper. Like, what do you think of that, like, dry betting, Frank? Well, I I think it certainly is not nearly – I don't know, honestly. I'm not an expert in gambling psychology or anything like that, even though, you know, I enjoy placing a bet occasionally. But I was really interested in what Joel said about what a game-changer – Live betting was live sports betting where you could bet. You don't have to wait till the game ends. You can bet in the mid quarter and things like that. I I really I couldn't say um, what what. uh, But it seems to me like what you're uh, what you're talking about is a lot less likely to result in being a problem gambler just for the reason that it at least slows you down a little bit. It causes you to take a breath. But, uh, again, I don't pretend to be an expert on this, Joe, but I would think that's a less uh, a less risky proposition than this electronic sports gambling. 800-848-9222. Tom is in Westchester. Hello, Tom. Uh, yeah, good morning. Uh, I think she would make an awesome vice president if Trump decides to elect her. I think, uh, you know, I'm I'm not crazy about Pence, but I like her. I think, you know, she can definitely uh, give him that uh, that edge. Yeah, um, you know, I do, too. I don't know. I know there's a lot of areas of disagreement between the two of them, but uh, I was hoping that Trump would have given her something in his uh, in his cabinet. I, I still if Trump gets elected in 2024, I'd love to see him make her secretary of state or something along those lines. But, yeah, I would much prefer her to, that, to some of the other ca- people they're yes. talking about as a vice president. And I, and I have one more thing to say sure. about gambling and the addiction of it. I mean. I am a recovering addict. My weapon of choice uh, 12 years ago was cocaine, and Mm. uh, I am happy and free of it. And I have two young kids, and I always talk to them about the feelings of things because that's really what addiction is about, especially with gambling. And my son, you know, he's he's in his late teens now. He's, He's an adult, but, you know, 
And, uh, you know, he sees all this stuff, and he talks about, like, because, you know, he's involved in sports, you know, he likes football, you know, and, and, you know, he brings up, like, gambling and everything. And I tell him, listen, you know, gambling is fun when, you know, uh, when you when you would just enjoy, you know, doing it. But when you're doing it for the thrill, when you're doing it for uh, some type of rush, you know, you know, when you because that's the problem with gambling like drugs. You always think things are going to get better when you lose your money. You always think you're going right. to get your money back. Right. You always, and when you start thinking like that, that's where the danger comes. And I would just uh, advise advise any parent to talk to their kids about feelings of things. You know, you know, to listen to them. Uh, uh, Tom, you know, especially you're, you're, when they see these things. You're exactly right, Tom. Tom, I'm glad you're doing well. Good luck with everything, and I appreciate well, you sharing you. that story. Thank and you. thanks for thanks for listening. Um, Tom is is right in that in a lot of ways, from where I stand, gambling is almost the worst addiction to have, right? Because whatever your addiction is, let's say you're an alcoholic, you stop drinking, you you get drunk at some point, right? And presumably when you get drunk to the, uh, and you vomit or whatever you, happens when you get drunk, you at least stop drinking for a little while, meaning maybe it's an hour, maybe it's two hours, maybe it's six hours. You stop drinking for a little while. If you're a drug addict, you stop shooting up once you get high. Then you look out, you look and for an opportunity to get high again. But at least you stop doing drugs for a little while. When If you're a sex addict, you stop being compelled to have sex at least for a little while, once you climax, right? But with gambling, you never stop. Because if you're winning, you just keep gambling because you think you're going to win more. If you're losing, you just keep gambling because you're going to get back to even. There's never a point where you pause. You just keep going and going and going and going. You heard from Joel, and that's why I was so eager to have him on the air. He talks about... How he lost his whole life, not just the money from his business, not just getting beaten up by these shady gangsters he was dealing with, but he had no relationships. Um, I know a lot of people that I would describe as functional alcoholics that are able to maintain a a work-life balance that includes alcohol um, because they stop once they get drunk. Gambling, you never stop. Very, uh, very scary. 800-848-9222. We're going to do the $1,000 minute in just a moment, but um, a couple of people have been patiently holding. I just want to get to them. Howie is in Maryland. Hello, Howie. Hi. I'd like to take exception to what you're saying. I like Tulsi. I was hoping she'd stay in the Democratic Party and reform it. Maybe some of the independents would uh, come over. But the thought of her running independent, to me, brings up the possibility of her being another Ross Perot. I, I'm, a, I'm afraid we'll end up with Gavin Newsom or somebody in office if well, he runs independent. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that, uh, uh, Howie, and I think a lot of people uh, probably feel the same way. The, again, I, I'm going to be very brief here, and we'll do a whole segment on this in the future. I think the way to avoid that so-called spoiler effect is with uh, is with ranked choice voting. If you could rank Tulsi first and then Trump second or Biden second, that would do away with that spoiler effect. Third uh, or second, whatever I'm up to. Thank you, uh, Howie. Um, second, the Ross Perot myth is not true. Okay, I've linked to this mini documentary on my Facebook page, or you could just Google it. Um, the myth of Ross Perot. It's there is no point. During the 1992 presidential campaign, and I got into this with Ryan Clancy when he was on the show uh, Thursday morning or Wednesday morning. 
There is no point in the 1992 election where George Bush was leading. None. When Perot dropped out, Bush wasn't leading. When Perot came back, Bush wasn't leading. That being said, a lot of people believe Perot cost Bush the election. A lot of people believe Nader cost uh, Al Gore the election. If we had ranked choice voting, people could have voted for Perot first, Bush second. And you wouldn't have to worry about this so-called spoiler effect. Um, As to your first point about hoping Tulsi would reform the Democratic Party, I get that. Um, And I'm sympathetic to that argument because I want the best Democratic Party there can be and the best Republican Party they can be. And unfortunately, I think both of these parties are scraping the bottom of the barrel. So I would love to see an independent alternative, whether that's what Andrew Yang is doing, whether it's what Tulsi's doing or something else. But uh, I get that. I, I'm sympathetic to that argument. Let me give David an opportunity to uh, to be heard before we do the $1,000 minute. Hello, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Um, Tulsi Gabbard, to, to cut it short, is an opportunist because with her radical views, which will fit perfectly into the Republican Party, she had no chance of doing anything as a Democrat. She will make millions of dollars going on TV writing books, doing whatever. She will not run for president because she will take votes away from a Republican a Republican candidate like Trump. Because look at her views. She's been on Tucker Carlson's program multiple times. She's even hosted it, okay? So she's not even really a Democrat. This is all about fame and fortune. That's all it is. David, well, first of all, you might be right, right? There's no way to, I can't prove or disprove somebody's motivations. Um, And, you know, she would be very well positioned to make money from this or get publicity from this for some of the reasons that you stated. But if you look at her positions, there are... A lot of areas where she doesn't align with uh, conservative orthodoxy, abortion, for instance, she's very pro-choice. She's very supportive of things like transgender rights. Those aren't two things that are, um, you know, uh, well, I guess transgender rights, maybe that is something that she does fit in more with the GOP. But uh, certainly health care. She's for single payer health care, just like you are. Right. Criminal justice reform. Wait, wait, I'm not for single-payer health care. What made you think that? Well, because you yeah, called the, um, the, the uh, Joe Piscopo show 10 years ago and said that you were for single-payer. Well, I've changed or my not. position because having become blind and experienced the medical, uh, medical system for what it really is, which is just a profit-making scam that's run like the mafia, there's no way in hell I would support spending more money and giving more money to doctors and pharmacies and all these other operations that are basically killing us for their own profit. I know that might surprise you, but, you know, when you get older like I have, you adopt different views, which she might have. I'm going to give her a slight amount of credit and say that she might be a little sincere because she has been heavily on the side of Russia and Syria and places like that for a long time. So maybe she does have some sincere values, but I really do question her motivations, to be honest. All right. Thank you, I don't David. question yours. What? Thank you. Sorry, I, you... I don't question yours. I believe you're sincere. I, I happen to believe you're more of a libertarian than anything else. All right. You might be right. Uh, thank you. Um, but uh, I, I kind of am all over the place. I don't think I'm anything. Uh, conservative, liberal, libertarian. Uh, you know, I like, I'm like a Chinese menu of political positions. I like this position, that position. And like David, and I give him credit for changing his view on health care, like David, my views change on issue after issue. All right. 800 848 
800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. What we're going to do in a moment is the $1,000 minute. We're going to give the seventh caller to 800-848-9222 a chance to win $1,000 if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Uh, be the seventh caller now at 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. This is Tulsi Gabbard singing a cover of Imagine. It's from three years ago as a tribute to John Lennon with the ukulele. Is there anything this woman can't do? My goodness. Uh, All right. Uh, It is time for us to try to give away some money. Uh, We're going to see if we can't find someone who can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds as part of... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Moreno. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Uh, let us say hello to Philip in Baltimore. Hello, Philip. Hello. All right, Philip, um, I imagine you're a new listener to the show since you're listening to us on WCBM in Baltimore. Are you familiar with how this contest works? No, I ha- I'm not. Okay, great. Okay, good. So we'll have a chance to explain to everybody. Um, you're going to have to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. The timer will begin right after I ask the first question. If you get one wrong, it's it's over. But if you get a question right, and these are all relatively simple questions, so you don't want to get hung, you don't want to overthink them. Um, if you get a question right, we're just going to move on to the next one, so that we can run through all of them in sixty seconds. Okay, you clear? Yes. Okay. Uh, so let's get started. If you're ready, what sound? Okay. I'm sorry. Do you have a final comment? No. Okay. What sound? Do dogs make? Four. What is two multiplied by two? Four. What star of murder she wrote passed away this week? What famous vampire was the main character in a novel by Bram Stoker? Christopher Lee. No, no, uh, the character. Who's the character? Dracula. What is the capital of China? Hong Kong. Ah, no, I'm sorry, Philip. The capital of China is Beijing. Beijing. Oh, yeah. So I'm sorry. So you got you got four correct. You lost on the fifth one. I'm going to put you on hold, though, Philip, uh, because we're going to give you a consolation prize, a cap or something, and we hope it, we, you wear it proudly all around Baltimore, okay? Okay. All right, Philip. Hang on. Maybe I'll see you at Babe Ruth's house if I can get down there sooner rather than later. Have you been down there, Babe Ruth's house? Uh, no, I haven't. All right. Well, good. It'll be a it'll be a return trip for me, a first trip for you. 
We'll enjoy some crab cakes afterwards. Grab Phillip's information if you would, Kenneth. Make sure he gets his cap. Uh, for anybody that wants to buy a cap, whether you're in Baltimore or elsewhere, you can go to uh, com. Yesterday, an interesting thing happened. We played the new hit single from Alex Barnard, who is a specialist in the genre of uh, death con metal. And... Uh, it's about, appropriately enough, it's about some a Russian fable or anything. It's not bad. I liked it actually a lot more than his previous song. This is what it sounds like. It's not bad. As far as Defcon Metal goes, it's called Lethal Sleep. It's available on iTunes or elsewhere. And so we played it, right? And so I'm leaving the uh, the studio, and this is on no sleep, right? None. None, none, none. This, is, this was one of those days yesterday where by the time I got here, I f- felt exhausted. I, I was struggling to stay awake while driving here from Bernie McGurk's wake in, in Long Island. And so my... This is... After the whole four hours of a show, I had one hour to get ready to host another show. And so in this interregnum, um, between this show and the other show that I was hosting, Alex Barnard comes over to me and says what? He says, hey, you know, uh, I'm sorry that we weren't able to uh, call Dustin Bass before the show and make sure he was there. He doesn't say, hey, you know, this is a really remarkable show and very little sleep. He doesn't say, hey, you know, um, I'm sorry we still haven't figured out a way to get descriptions written for the local Spotlight podcast. None of that. Instead, Alex says to me, um, thank you for playing, letting me talk about our new song for one minute. One minute. Now, after I got a little rest, I realized that this was not a sincere thank you this was sarcasm. Now, uh, Alex Barnard is here. We're going to talk to him in a second. But, Matt Blaze, as best as you understand it, and you're a DJ, you work in radio also, uh-huh. as best as you understand it, uh, and I know that you you probably listen to more music radio than I do. I listen to a lot of talk radio, as you know. But uh, are there a lot of nationally syndicated radio shows that are playing Alex Barnard's m- music? Not that I Lethal know. Lethal Sleep is the song. Are there, there, I don't know who else he's, he he sent the song to. Right? Are there a lot of FM stations that you have heard playing Lethal Sleep as you've been driving? In? Again, not that I know of. I, I think I heard it on Z100. The Did, other day. I, so you may. I see. I don't listen to Z100 wow. habitually, so I might. Uh, I might have missed it. Isn't the top eight at eight? Are there? Yeah. A lot, are, now he works here at WABC. He's got a lot of connections with a lot of the other hosts here. Does a great job that with is, Dominic Carter. That is and, true. Rita Cosby and everybody. Are there a lot of shows on WABC, for instance, that are playing Lethal Sleep by Alex Barnard? Well, I know we didn't play it on Rita's show, and I know we didn't play it on Dominic's show. So on those two other shows, we did not play it. I, I, I cannot know, speak for the I, other shows. I listen to the Cats at Night show every night. I haven't heard it on there. I might have missed it. Right. I heard them playing other songs. They played Who Let the Dogs Out yesterday. They play the Superman theme every day. I have right. not yet heard Lethal Sleep. So then I'm thinking, okay, maybe it's the audience that is demanding more and more Lethal Sleep conversation. Not even music we're talking about. We're talking about conversation about the song because there right. are some artists 
that let the music actually speak for themselves. Like right. Elvis, for instance, or Johnny Cash. They didn't need to go out there and say, oh, this is what Hound Dog is about, or this is what Hurt is about. They just kind of let people enjoy the music. Um, but sure enough, at least some of the listeners aren't necessarily that crazy about this. Um, you really? pointed this out to me, Matt Blaze, in the Facebook group. Harl J. Smith made the comment, Frank, please don't play that garbage, parenthesis, music that you played last night at 3 a.m. It sounded like something from an insane asylum. I could not turn the dial fast enough and go to Coast to Coast AM where things were more normal, four exclamation points. Listen to that crap at your own home if you love it so much, and you're not doing anyone any favors by playing that satanic crap. No wonder why the country is so messed up. Listening to that will drive you insane. Now, um, I think given all those circumstances, Alex Barnard, it might not have been, you know, I don't know why you're giving me a hard time for giving you only a minute to talk about this. I mean, look, it's, it is a compliment that, you know, he's saying that my music is satanic and whatnot. Like, you know, I... Uh, That's what you're going for, satanic. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. What are you kidding? Um, and, you know, look, I am appreciative, obviously, that you did play this song. Well, um, I, I can know. tell. Oh, come on, Frank. You know... For the one minute. Please. For the one you, minute. You, you know, you can you take a joke? This is once? like... Uh, a joke is a short story with a humorous climax. What you did is the equivalent of... Um, me giving um, a, a homeless guy a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and the homeless guy oh says thanks a lot. Can you spare it? That's that's what you did this morning. There was no appreciation. There was no joke. There was no laughter. There, there was even none of that. None thanks, of it, thanks for playing my song yeah, for the right, minute. Right, exactly. Right. Was, All right. Fair you know, enough. Well, so maybe you're right. So from now we are going to launch a a mini series. Dedicated to just discussion of lethal sleep. We're going to have a panel of experts on psychologists, uh, music experts. We're going to analyzing every lyric, every bar of this song so that this song gets the proper discussion that it's entitled to. A we'll deep do it. dive. It needs a deep dive. <laughs> We're going to drill down uh, on the analysis of lethal sleep. Listen, it's lethal sleep. That deserves a deep dive. All right, well, Just te- by the yeah, time. thanks, Matt. Since you're here, um, uh, tell us. Uh, hey, by the way, what happened with that Angela Lansbury clip that we that we played? It sounded like it uh, stopped. S- and sometimes the audition will, um, you know, buffer for a second while you're recording a shot, you know, and then it just, uh, and then when I have, you know, maybe about an hour before show and I'm getting everything ready. Sometimes I don't uh, listen to it all the way through after I've cut it. Interesting. Well, thanks a lot for that. Um, oh, yeah, you're welcome. So, <laughs> Thanks for honoring the legend that is Angela Lansbury yeah, exactly. with a crappy clip. Yeah. Uh, now, um, tell us about, again, you, you started to tell us about this Russian folk story about the zombies that is the basis for lethal sleep. So we'll give you one more minute to tell people about this. Tell us about this story, how it came to be. I mean, it's basically, it's just basically a really poorly written internet story that was really popular in the early 2010s, I want to say, um, that, uh, every, it was all over these silly internet forums and such. And it, um, got really, uh, it got a lot of traction for some reason. That's basically about it. All right. Well, um, how do people hear this lethal sleep song? 
Uh, you can get it on Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you want it. Uh, Lethal Sleep by Face Stealer. All right. Lethal Sleep by Face Stealer. Thank you, Alex. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Uh, if you want to be heard for 15 seconds to talk about Lethal Sleep, uh, then you can do so at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. to get over this Alex Barnard thing. You know, I've been a producer for a lot of shows over the years, right? And sometimes I've had things that I've wanted to promote, uh, sometimes uh, charity things, sometimes, you know, publicity things for television or radio. And you know what? If somebody would have promoted one of my things, you know what I would say? Thank you! Not sarcastically, not, hey, thanks for only giving me a minute to talk about my St. Baldrick's charity. You know, nothing. I, I, I just, I'm dumbfounded. Dumbfounded. Unbelievable. 800-848-9222 if you want to be heard for, um, if you want to be heard for 15 seconds, it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Mike in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. Frank, I thought Tulsi the smartest Democrat, and now that she's left, who will fill that void? Kamala, perhaps? Oh, uh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut him off prematurely. Mike and Lake George. Good morning, Frank. I'll tell you, I was telling Ken, the last time I had a conversation with Bernie on Long Beach Boardwalk, I was saying I do pretty good imitations, but not as good as you, Bernie. What doesn't belong and why? What doesn't belong and why? Uh, I hope the suits can name a studio. John Cassimatidis after the great Bernie McGurk. Frankie and Glendale. Good morning, Frank. Is a shout out to Fred from Yonkers. Don't drink the milk. Why? It spoils. <laughs> it is indeed. Thank you, Frankie. All we have time for today. Uh, back tomorrow with some interesting things, including the AC report. Frank Morano, good day.